worked on that one piece of equipment for however long of your life you put yourself into it and then you know that person's got it hopefully forever i mean yeah i mean i started making these quivers you know that was like 2012 so i've been doing it nearly as much air as they can out and put everything we own under their pad to keep them warm <laughs> welcome to the field notes podcast with josh raffin today we have mark pitts of marksman quivers mark welcome thank you josh well sitting out at your place here and see plenty of uh traditional bow hunting gear and and a couple of racks a bit of everything laying around i guess let, let's start from the start so mark pitts not originally born in australia no, that's right. give me a rundown mate what what so yeah i'm from the uk i uh, it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride for me you know my life took a big change you know i was um obviously brought up in england and um still doing hunting and that you know my dad was a a gamekeeper. Oh, so, really? Yeah. So we would, from as long as I remember, you know, we we're looking after pheasants and partridges for shooting, driven shoots with shotguns, you know. Um, so so they, they release them? Yeah. Oh, so you guys would release we, them? We would, we would get them as chicks a lot of the time or buy them in as, you know, young birds. And we would have, we would set up pens. So you'd have an open top pen large enough to have as many birds as you were going to put in there. And then we would have what would be called a cover strip, which would be maize or kale, a big strip, you know, maybe two acres of that, a bit less, you know, and uh, that would give food to the birds and house them. And then we'd have feeders and that, so, and waterers. So we'd constantly like raise them birds from, from young, you know. How long does it take to get from a chick to shoot, like release? Shooting them. They would, we would do it in the summer and then, well, they would be released. Well, from the chicks, they would be a bit earlier, but from the released birds, you know, it'd be in the summer we would release them and then the winter they'd be, you know, ready to start huh. shooting. But this would, we put the big cover strips down because that would bring in the wild birds as well. So oh, you would right. get the are raised they, birds and the wild birds together. Are the wild birds ones that had been previously released and then they yes, got... Yes, and just native around there, you know, as well. Because you'd have a lot of low-lying. It was all... Where I'm from is called the Fen. So it was all flat cropland. It was all underwater at one point and then it all got drained. And so you'd have all ditches and dikes which are cut channels for the waters going into the river for irrigation yep. all between each field of various sizes. Okay. So you'd get all the ditches that have, you know, when I was younger, they used to be a lot more um, grown up and that, you know, and you'd have a lot of bush and scrub for the birds to get in. But now, obviously, farming practices, they try to keep everything so clean and that. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Cycle through everything so quick, you don't get a lot of that, um, you know, scrubby land. But, and then, you know, so we'd constantly be working every weekend it seemed like you know raising the birds you'd have to go and put the feed out for them put the water you'd have to put the straw under the feeders when they got all muddy from all the birds pecking at the corn feeders so they didn't get all mud over their feet and you know it would all go hard and so he's constantly tending the birds and then you know when it came to shooting season you would you would um be doing what when i was younger i'd be doing what would be called like beating so you would um you'd have a flag on a stick and you'd have, you're taking big tracts of land, like loads of you. And then the guns would be at the other end of the cover. Okay. Like not right on the end, but in a big semicircle, you know, 50, 60 meters out. And then we would push all the, bring all the land in, funnel the birds into the cover, into the, like the kale strips and the maize. And then we would slowly push them through and then the birds would be flying. So they'd break cover. Yeah. Okay. So whether they would, you'd always have to, sometimes you get a big flush of birds and then you'd have to stop and just 
keep them in. You'd have to have people around the side bringing them in, and then so and then we'd push through, and then yeah, they'd just shoot them, and uh, you'd have picker uppers with dogs behind that, and they would you know note where the birds went down and get them, and, and you'd do that over uh, you know you we would have like I don't know four or five maybe six drives a day, you know, four before lunch and then four after. <laughs> and when I was younger, we used to get like, we used to get three pounds for doing that. First thing, we did it for <laughs> three, you know, but it was, it was so good. You know, I was running around in the, in the, the you know, countryside, you know, we were crawling under bramble bushes and looking for birds. It was just awesome. You know? It's funny too, like you, you mentioned, um, you push the birds too hard and they yeah. flush early and you've got to back off. And, and I think that... Pr- I feel like that might have instilled that in a really young age to be later in life become a really patient bow hunter, particularly with traditional gear. Yes, that's right. That's right. It all it all does help. You know, you can, people can't shoot when there's ten birds flying over you. You can shoot one and you're rushing. You know, when 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 it can be controlled. Yeah, done. I mean, it doesn't always work like that. They want to get away, you know. But um, it all <laughs> it it does help. That yes, it does. It. I never thought of it like that, but yeah, it does. Well, there you go. <laughs> does instill a bit of patience and uh, well, and learn and understanding that you can't. You're on the animals' terms, right? Even this though they're not, birds, yeah. like you're on their terms. So I mean, that directly translates to a deer or a goat or a pig. Like, yeah, yeah, they're, they're just going to run away. Situation, yeah, that's it. That's yeah. it. You're stuck by their rules. Like it's you're just sort of pressing them as much as you can to, yeah, <laughs> to make you, it work. No, that's it. You, you think a stalk, you know, you you take as much as you can, but you know, there's it's on a knife edge because it can just all change straight away. You know? It's all in their hands. You know, it's yeah. how how hard can you push that animal till they flush? That's it. Yeah. So, no, sorry to break off on a tangent there. Yeah. I've um I've hunted pheasants in South Australia. Um, with, but with, with shotgun. Yeah, with yep. gun dogs. Yep. So I've got two German pointers at home. Yeah, yeah. And um, that's how I originally got into hunting was like small game hunting. Yeah. And I had so much fun. You know, I had so much fun. And it was, it, they were released birds and there were some wild birds there from previous releases. But yeah, that pricked my ears up as soon as I heard that because yeah. it is just such a cool gentleman's sport. You're out for the day. Yeah, there's a definitely a difference, you know, like because I was growing up doing it. And when I was older, you know, beating prices went up but you know it's never for the money I was doing it because I was helping my dad and it was awesome you know like but it got me out in the outdoors from an early age and I you know I, I love my dad for that you know he's yep. introduced me you know my dad says it's in everybody but it's just when it gets brought out you know and, and mine was lucky enough to be brought out at a really early age so I've had my whole life outdoors interacting with animals and, and you know the country and it's, it's good you know but how along with doing the pheasants the game side of thing we had all the pest control you know and it's hard for people to understand that you know like we, we had terriers as well and lurchers which are like greyhound running dogs okay so my, we, we've never had rifles we've always had shotguns for the the game and pigeon shooting duck shooting geese shooting and, and we had dogs you know we would we would hunt foxes with the dogs so we would we had terriers so we would have a a small radio locator on them and right. we would find foxholes and the site so all the all the cropland would have the the ditches like i mentioned before and the foxes would burrow into the side of them ditches yeah so we would find the holes especially around the pheasant pens and that you know like because obviously predation you want to save as many birds as possible yeah. and, and you get a fox that gets into a pen that's why they have the open tops because if fox gets into that pheasant pen they'll kill everything 
nip all their heads off, bury some of them, and they probably won't take any. Right? <laughs> right. So you've got to be able, the birds have got to be able to fly out. Oh, okay. And then you would have like what's called a popo. It would be like, there'd be, so this would all be small mesh, but then round it, on each side in the middle of the the, the pen, you would have small, bigger squared um, fencing, like just a small piece with bigger holes. And then you'd have two bits of wire that came out in semicircles. So when the birds were walking around, they'd get funneled back into the pen. Okay. Sort of thing. So oh, and, right. and when they were younger, you know, we would we would when the birds were younger, I can remember going there with my dad, you know, and he would it'd be late afternoon and they would all the birds would be out because they'd come out of the pen and, you know, whether they'd flown out, come out through these things called pop holes. And and I can remember we'd stay there, you know, I I wouldn't understand it really when I was younger, I'd be bored sitting there, but for my dad would spend an hour, hour and a half just walking around the pen one step at a time, slowly pushing the birds so they would just going back into the pen each night, you know, every time we went and checked them, you know, and yeah, again, that comes down to patience, you know. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, just, just to do that, you know, it's, um, and even releasing them, you know, we would, when we got the older birds, we would get them in, in big, like they'd be in a big plastic crate, and I've seen people do it, and they would just walk in with it and shake all the birds out, and the birds would just fly and go, and they'd probably never come back, you know, whereas we would, you know, my man would open the door, and again, just wait give them their own time and they would just all come out so you start pecking around and yep. you know it's, they were comfortable it's patience you know that's it so yeah back to the dogs we would when we were hunting the foxes so they'd have a small radio collar on and this was pretty low technology at that time but <laughs> we would um, it would just so if if you thought there was a fox in there obviously tracks on the on the kick out and that and smell and that and you could tell by the top of the hole would be if it was a fox the top of the hole would be warm the top would be smooth from where the back's going whereas if you had a badger hole it would be because the badgers are protected in England you, you couldn't touch them because but the holes are wider and the tops aren't smooth oh right and you could tell by different things like if there was a cobweb on the hole that there was nothing been going yeah. in and out there you know things Good like point. that so and the dogs know you know they know when there's something in there so we'd, we'd put the dog down in there and then um, and give it some time and, and when they found the fox hunters there they would start baying you know start barking and, and you want to kind of you want a dog that would keep off the fox but hold it there because the next step would be would be digging down to it oh so, right so you would go further behind the hole or you're well, digging the hole out so from the front? so no no no, not from the front from the top so yep. there, there'd be the field on top and and like the the, di- the side of the ditch so we'd we'd let the the dog find the fox and, and with a good terrier you'd want it to try and get the fox up a stop end yeah. because you would have often if a dog goes in and just gets hold of it one you can't hear it bark yep. two it's getting smashed up down there and three if that as soon as you start digging especially it used to do it when you used to break through the fox would get away from the dog and go and then you've dug maybe a seven foot hole maybe a two foot <laughs> hole you know and then you've got to start again you know, <laughs> yeah. a different so you want to give it enough time that it would get it up a stop end you know like somewhere where it can't go anywhere so then we would we'd listen to the baying and we'd have this little um radio box for the tracker and it would beep and it would it would beep when you or click pretty low fi but it would click when you got over the top of the dog in different intensities so you would start working scanning around and when it started clicking then you'd start winding down the <laughs> the um little um wheel on the side and it would you would try and fine tune it until you got it to a point and then you could go off in a star 
And if it, if it clicked in the middle of that start, you know, if it started clicking over a different direction, you'd have to start moving. But when you pinpoint that point, we would have a, a meter long spike and we'd go down and we'd make a hole and then you could lay and listen to see if you're over. And if you broke through, it was good. The dog got a bit more air down there. And <laughs> so then when we made sure they were there, then we would start digging. And, and you dig down, like I say, my dad's done 10 foot holes, you know, oh, and, and we've done... A lot of them, especially on the cropland, they're only only small, but you'd, you'd dig a big enough hole to get in and then you'd get down to it and you'd usually come down on the, because of the collar on the dog, you'd come down on the dog. And if it's just baying at the fo- ideal situation, it would be baying at the fox and you wouldn't be able to see the fox. Then you would just pull the dog out, put a spade over the hole, and then you would give it a while. We'd either then, we would net the holes, the other holes as well, if there was bolt yeah. holes, so we'd have six foot long like purse nets. Yep. And if it the fox came out of there, we'd have the lurcher, the, like the greyhound running around. And if that, if it bolted out of there, the fox, would, uh, the dog would grab the fox in the net, you know. Oh yeah. Yep. And they're they're cunning, you know. They come out and they they push the nets aside with their nose if they don't know, because you had to stand like you know back from the nets because they wouldn't. You know, I've seen them. We've been doing it with shotguns as well. The same if we'd bolt and we'd shoot them and. And they'd come out and they would just push the net aside with their nose. Or they back out. If they back out, they can roll out the net and, and go. Oh so God. it's so many different scenarios. You know, <laughs> it's good to have the dog there to, to catch me. You know, when you're doing it for pest control purposes. And so then we would. My dad had a little four ten, little hammer action one with the barrel cut right down as far as you legally could. You know, and we would have that. And and this is my, you know, some of my oldest memories of when I was tiny. You know, like not bigger, much bigger than my son. You know, now and it would. He'd pull the spade back. I'd stand on the top of the four ten, pull the hand back, and he's like, "Right, when it comes, you shoot it." And 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 it would slowly creep forward, and then just shoot it in the head, you know. And that's the my memories from when I was younger doing that, you know. And then I'd have to. They would hang me in the hole by my feet, and I'd have to grab it around the jaw and pull it out, you know. Like, and uh, yeah, but it's so all that, you know. When you think like that's a huge, it's a lot of work. Oh, for a fox. Yeah, but but that was that was the thing we got because of us doing the pheasant shooting and having all the land to to go on we got to do that and that's what my dad loves doing so you know and I, and I do and so that was like our repayment for doing all the work yeah because we didn't get but my dad was it was only part-time but it was full-time but yeah. it was only part-time he never got paid for it we just got the that was our permission on all that land you know yeah that was because the, it, the it was like a, a you know a guy called David Hughes and he owned all the land you know around where we were or a lot of it you know and big estate and we you know we had that was our hunting, you know, that was our land that we had permission because there's no, there's no um, public land in England yeah. to hunt. So yeah. that was it. You either had private land or you didn't. So yeah. knowing all the farmers and that and having that land to do that, but it, it's a cycle, you know, everything's a circle. We would do that. So we would hunt the foxes like that and we'd go out and spotlight, like we call it lamping in England. Yeah. You'd lamp for them at night and we would again, we'd squeak the foxes in and let the dogs on them. We wouldn't oh, do yeah. them rifles and they would catch them and then, You'd do it like that. You all know? very low impact, hey? Like yeah, there's no, no one knows you're there. You know, it's it, it is, and and there, there's no kind of with a dog. There's no there's no wounding either. Yeah. The, He's got it or he doesn't. That's it. And yeah. and you, if you you know people when all the fox hunting and that got banned there with dogs, you think that a fox is they're getting stressed from doing this. The dog chasing them. If you see it, if you have a fast dog, they'll the fox will just get away from them because the fox will just go slow and then turn and then turn and the dog's going by every time overshooting yeah. and then they'll just get to cover you know and yeah. and that's it the dog's absolutely knackered and it hasn't done anything you know so it's it is low impact it is you know but 
it would be so good doing that. But people could never understand that we would so we would kill the foxes to protect the pheasants. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But then when the shoot days are done, you'd have an excess of pheasants, you know, like the, the posh people that did it would only take a, a brace of pheasants, you know, a cock and a hen, they'd be put in, in pairs, you know, and we'd hang all up count them. You might have a hundred birds, you know, like shot that day. So you would, everyone would take some, we'd have a, a glut of extra, you know, some people would take a bit extra, but so this is from, for me, I always was taught never to waste meat, you know, we would then take them home and we would cut them all up, cut all the breasts off every, every bird, you know, because they're wild birds, they're not as big as like the, 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 the other ones, you know, you think of a factory chicken, they're not like that, the breasts aren't very big, but, and the legs are nothing on them usually, but yeah, we, we would cut all the breasts off them, we, you know, we'd eat that and you'd have pheasants, partridges, this was before there was a lot of deer around us, you know, and we'd have hares, they'd shoot hares, well, a few rabbits, but, so, we would do that, but then we would take, my dad would take the carcasses of the pheasants, like when we cut the breasts off, and he would go and scatter them around the fen when he was walking the dogs, you know? Right. For the foxes, so there was more foxes there, so we could hunt the foxes, and it's just a circle, yeah, you know? Yeah. People couldn't understand why you're feeding them if you kill them. Well, because that's uh That's how it works. That's, <laughs> then it's a cold winter, then foxes, you know, they might be struggling for food, Instead of them eating the game birds, they can eat these, and and then we get to hunt them, and it's just a, everything's a circle, you know. With but people have lost that now. That the they, whole sustain it, the, the idea. Yeah, of, sustainable. You know, yeah. it's they people don't understand that, but but that's that's the way we did that, and and along with that, we had you know we had ferrets, we had ferret rabbits again with the nets over the holes, and. Oh. And I'd do that, you know. From, that was my money when I was younger. You know, I'd go. We would go out with the lurchers lamping and I'd be carrying that's a, you know another memory is carrying a, a, a bag over my shoulder a game bag you know full of rabbits behind my dad walking in the dark you know all the time you know and then I'd I'd go and sell them and, and ones I'd ferreted ones I shot my hair off or snaring them you know that was my phone credit and stuff when I was jumping, you know? like it's, how good's it's that good. yeah kind of like a trapper it's good you know my dad used to sell fox skins and that because the ones you get with the dogs they never the less holes you had the the more money you got of for course, him, you know. So when he was he was sort of younger and before, well, when we came along before, he had me and my brother. You know, he'd do that. You know, and sell them. So it's kind of cool that you know to say your your dad's a trapper. You know, kind of at one point, you know, it's, it, and it it's is not and a you, common thing. You know? Yeah, and and the whole gamekeeper thing. There's that allure of that. I don't know. I put I put that on a pedestal kind of thing mm. because it's it's. It's, it's you romanticize about that lifestyle right but you've lived it you've seen it and now um you're here in australia yeah, yeah. so um what what got you coming over here so i we've always had bows and that in england you know my dad if, if we could have hunted with bows over there because it's illegal mm. we we couldn't you know is but, it still illegal yeah 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 wow. it's it was all to do with kings and and you know their game obviously because of the bow's silent you know it was all okay. back back in the day it was abandoned it's never been changed you know like that is odd it is it is when you can go out with other things you know i could go and chuck a stick at something and spear something that's perfectly fine or you know cap holes anything but you, you can't use a suppressor over like, there that's it, that's it. That's it. <laughs> i used to have an air rifle with 12 shot magazines seven inch <laughs> silence a dot sight you know everything and you, you know over here you can't have that but yeah you can do what you want but um 
lots of air rifle shooting over there, and that you know that's how you like you learn to stalk over there is with an air rifle, you know. Yeah, I've noted that is a big, like a big thing it's, over it's there, isn't it? Especially like barn shooting, yeah, and, and pigeons the... and you roost shooting pigeons when they're coming in, yep. you know, all that stuff. So we always had bows, but obviously we couldn't hunt. You know, from I remember going to archery classes when we were seven, and we'd always do other stuff. You know, our garden we had throwing knives, everything around we had bows, and whatever you want, you know. I had air rifles. Yeah, you know, like I used to sit and have. You know, my dad would go pigeon shooting and I'd sort of try and emulate that. I'd be shooting starlings and sparrows out the tree <laughs> and, and pegging their heads up so they look like I'm putting some bread around them and then they'd land. I'd, I'd shoot, you know. Like, oh, you were setting up little decoys. Yeah, in, in the garden, yeah, you cool. know, like, and, and doing that. And and so how it sort of evolved to bows, when I was older, I started getting back into, you know, shooting the bows we had from when we were younger. And then... When I was like 17, I kind of, because the internet was dial up, wasn't, there's no information and you couldn't get any, I mean, look at all the books I've got now, you know, like I never had any of that resources in England because you couldn't do it. It was like target archery and that's it. Yeah. A massively taboo subject, you know, hunting and no one wanted to know. So I would, I started getting back in. I remember going to a game fair and seeing someone had a video on in there and it was like a real tree video like monster bucks or something yeah. and i was just like a guy shooting out a tree stand and i was just like what is this <laughs> that is you know, me what the like this is amazing and then i picked up a catalog and i would i pretty much wore that little catalog out looking at the pictures and reading just a little bit you know like i say it was before you had access to the internet yeah that's crazy we, you know, I, we didn't have it and and then i found a gun shop they had a video of monster bucks five like Realtree, Bill Jordan, and I pretty much wore that thing out, you know, like <laughs> hunting in Saskatchewan and, and shooting the caribou and, and in, in in Canada and that. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. So I started looking more into archery and that and seeing what I could get. And then I got a friend to take me to an archery shop, which it was an hour away. Like, I never used to travel in England because you, you were where you were. You never had any reason to go anywhere else, you know, whereas here, I'll, you know, I'll drive what would be the equivalent of driving for, to Scotland just for a weekend hunt here, you know? That's crazy, just right? never do it back yeah. there. Yeah. Just wouldn't do it. Yeah. An hour, I was, I don't know, well, it was me a bit as well, you know, I was pretty sheltered, like, you know, an hour drive, I'd be, like, stressing about it, you know, like, a foreign uh, nav man from work, like, oh, God, I don't know if the, the roads are different over there or the roundabout, it's just, it's, it's just, I wouldn't do it. And I got a friend to take me to an archery shop and I wanted to get a recurve, like a traditional bow, they didn't have any in sort of the poundage I wanted, you know, a bit higher. So I ended up getting a, a camouflage recurve, a PSE, and and I was so green back then. The guy was like, I was like, oh, I was going to use a brown bale as a target, and he's like, oh, it'll probably go all the way through that. So I was like, got it home, and I didn't want to shoot it because I was like, <laughs> what, what have I bought? What have I bought? I ended up. It was only fifty five pounds, so I I kind of I had a go with it, and uh, I was like all right so it's not actually that bad you know and just you know, i had aluminium arrows with field tips on didn't know nothing you know there was like two companies you could get stuff from one was in norwich and a little shop there and the other one i can't remember where it was but had a catalog so i would i'd start looking at the catalogs and just making stuff out of the catalogs instead of like obviously because I'd, I'd just started work then i was like 17 18 and uh, didn't have a lot of money you know like in-house trained and, and didn't didn't have a massive wage, so I and I've always been like that. You know, my dad's like that, my mum, my brother, yeah. tinkering with stuff, making stuff. So I'd just like 
make what I wanted out of the catalogs, you know, just copy it. Yep. And it's kind of led to doing my business here as well, I guess, you know. But so I can remember her aluminium arrows with field points on, and I remember going out with my mate. He had his air rifle, and we'd do it at night because obviously you can do it. Yeah. We'd go out and we'd hunt rabbits and that, and I can remember shooting this rabbit. So I had a, a compound which would be traditionally shot with a release aid now and sights and that. So I had no sights on it, I had finger taps, <laughs> so I shoot with fingers. And I can remember my mate shot up this, lit up this rabbit, and I shot it, and I didn't know I shot it. And then he, he had it in the lamp, and it had like 30 inch arrow all the way through, <laughs> and it got to the brambles and couldn't get no further. And I can remember I got this rabbit, and I ran with my dad straight away, and I was like, got one you know like it's just laughing at me you know but I was like so it was just blew me away you know I just shot this rabbit 20 yards in the dark you know like and so from that I started you know we had a little bit of land to go so I could do it in places where there was no one else so I I would do that and then I got more into the traditional I, I don't know why I've always liked the the wood bows and, and you know long bows and recurves and that so I got one of them from an, another gun shop. They had one in the corner and I bought this this um, longbow there and I'd shoot every day after work, you know. It just, like, took over my life, you know. I'd be... And I'd go to the clubs as well. Like, there was a club nearby and I'd go there and shoot. But, again, it was all target archery and it just didn't really interest me. But, yep. you know, it was somewhere to go and try and pick up a bit of information. Oh, and you're shooting your bow, right? Yeah, and that's so. it. You know, at longer distances because I only had... I mean, I was pretty fortunate to be big yard, but it was good to see other people. And, and kind of self-taught and and you you don't know kind of how good you are and it's good to go and get a a gauge gauge point you know like and and yeah so that that was kind of cool and uh see if you're on the right track of how you're doing it you know and what other people were doing so but uh, not not a lot of people had traditional bows there you know they started to after you know you would get involved with people and they'd see what you would do and they would get them but it's more compounds you know like so after that I I went I, I kept looking and looking so I, I was getting more into the hunting side of it and you know my dad had he had like a cupboard with all of the shooting stuff in in his room and, and the gun safe and that and he, he had a box from the 70s and it was like a um, barnet I think which made like crossbows and that and he had two two broadheads and he had all the receipt for everything they cost him like one dollar one pound seventy right delivery back in the day you know like and you get a broadhead now and it's like three for 45 dollars you know like, <laughs> so and i'd just look at these two i'd just get them out and have this little box and just look at them you know and i ended up That's getting more and more into the hunting side of it and researching you know like the internet and trying to get books and, and ordering stuff from america and that like dvds and books to look at and so i started researching like this was a few years down the track like where i could go hunting and, and obviously england was out europe I could never find there was never a lot of information like I'm sure if you looked in England now there would be there's groups there that you know get together and then they travel over to Spain and France and that and do it but yeah but there was nothing like that then you typed in bow hunting in England there was just it was a void it was a black hole you know there was nothing yeah so the stuff I did find from Europe was like it was per millimeter of tusk you paid if you were hunting pigs or whatever and per kilo of meat and I, I just wanted to go and hunt anything I didn't care if it was a doe you know a hind whatever you know so that kind of didn't appeal to me so looking and looking and I kind of I come across New Zealand you know and and uh, 
this was back in you know what would have been 2005 I was sort of looking into it and uh, and I got in touch with a guy over there deep south safaris or something and, and I ended up emailing you know like it, all, all this was new to me email was new to me everything yeah, yeah. I previously so when I was 21 I, I left the country for the first time on a plane with work you know we went over to <laughs> to Amsterdam and did a little five weeks of work over there but before that like I said I was, lived a sheltered country life where I lived had no shops you know and it was like you know not many houses it was small so a very sheltered life and then yeah. But it sheltered in the respect of travel and doing all that, whereas I had guns and that. You know, oh, my, yeah. my shotgun license when I was 14, you know. I, I was getting, you know, my dad was buying me sheep knives when I was seven and that, just to learn to respect everything, you know. Oh, you were very self, by the sounds of it, very self-sufficient, no, but just it. not travelling. Like that's it's not, it, you know. It's, you know. It's, it's, and people, we'd have motorbikes and that, and, and we'd have other kids, you know, come over and, and their mums would be like, oh, I can't believe you, you let your kids have motorbikes and there's knives laying around. It's like my mum my would say, well... They, they know they respect them things they're, yeah. they're not it's always been there that's... yeah that's it it's just a tool it's not yeah. you get a, an 18 year it's like going to the pub you know you get an 18 year old goes to the pub and from a, a, a private school you know in England and they've never drunk before and they go out and they have to have their stomach pump and nearly die Man, you know whereas awesome, if you've yeah. been having that you know a little bit from and learned that it's not a big indulgent thing it's just there it's, yeah. you Something respect you it do. and it's normal you know like yeah. I don't know if you've ever done paintball with people that have never had a gun it's yeah. scary they're standing there yeah. and shooting you know they've got their fingers on the triggers yeah. and it's like Jesus you, you imagine going hunting with these guys well, for the you wouldn't yeah, that's it you wouldn't and I'm like Jesus Christ you know like how it's just I take it for granted that I've been brought up you know if you're standing with people especially doing the pheasant shooting and that and there's you're hunting with so many people your gun's broken all the time to show not yeah, you know it's unloaded, but no one else does. Well, you don't know what that person's like. No, that's you know, it. it's yeah. And and you know, crossing ditches, you would always take the cartridges out. You know, like it, it, crossing fences because oh, I learned that all from a real young age. So it's always been instilled in me. Yeah. So. So, you, getting, so you were emailing oh, right, in New, New Zealand. Zealand, right? So I would, um, like I say, all that was new to me as well. You know, it was like you know dial up it would take ages to go through and, and I'd no get, one can I'd, be on the phone <laughs> no and I'd get home from work and oh I've got another email from them so <laughs> we'd be back and forth and I'd be sending them kind of things that we'd be hunting and that and what we'd be doing to show that I wasn't a total novice or anything but obviously bow hunting I, I'd, I'd gathered enough information and I was proficient enough by that well I bought some broadheads from America and I shot them at a target you know and I was I felt that the hunting side of it was alright and I felt I was ready to go bow hunting, you know, like yep. I, I was sufficient enough, you know, obviously from learning to stalk and that when I was younger, it was, that was all fine. It was, I was accurate enough with the bow that I thought I could do it with the knowledge I had at that time, you know, like, so, and yeah, I teed this hunt up in New Zealand and, and I went, I flew on my own, which was a massive thing. At the start, I was like trying to, oh, does anyone want to come, you know, younger mates that I had to, that hunted, I was like, oh, you know, do I involve them or do that? And then in the end, it was just like, no, because if, if I get up on the mountain and they don't want to, it's going to just wreck everything. So I do the same thing. Yeah, yeah, it was just right. So I got on So my mate dropped me off at the airport and I got a, I flew to New Zealand on my own, you know, and, and meeting a guy that I'd never met before and, and he picked me up from the airport, a guy called John, you know, and, and down in Dunedin and yeah, it was just, 
it's a long way to go. Massive, hey? you know. Like, like, we take it again for granted. Yeah. It's a three-hour oh, flight that now. Was it's twenty-something hours. You know, we flew to LA, and then from LA to to um, Auckland, and then transfer to Auckland, which got delayed because they I had to look at my bow and that, and the feathers on my arrows. It's all you know from biosecurity. Yeah. Because I have feathers on a compound arrow, which is you know unheard <laughs> of. It's plastic veins, you know. So I had that, and um, and. He picked me up and that all went well in Dunedin and we got talking, you know, and as soon as, like he said to me, you know, as soon as you started talking about what you're doing, you know, he said, like, you know, I knew we were going to, you you'd sort of, we're on the right page to do this kind of thing. And yeah, we hunted and I shot a goat that night in, in Balclutha. We, we drove his mate's farm and, and, and I was like, remember again, sending a message to my dad, you know, I'm, God. A, bow, I'm a bow hunter. <laughs> <laughs> you know? How and, good's uh, that? Yeah, uh, it's, uh, it was crazy. And then so... Then the next the next day we we went up into we drove from Balcluth that was like our base then and we drove to um, Queenstown and then went up into Glenorchy and went up a valley there to hunt Whitetail and, that, and that's where that that antlers from. Oh, you've got uh, um, cast up, up a casty. Wow. And um, and like the guy said, that John who was guiding me is like that's a really good for up there, you know. Yeah, it is. So we went up into a valley up there and we, we saw a few white tail like um, does and that and, and there was red deer up there and, and this was so that was my introduction to backpack hunting. I was before that I was like telling people in England, oh it'd be awesome, we you know, you go up into the bush and there's no trophy fees, you can shoot as much as you like and, and, and then obviously my eyes got opened when we got up there, you know. <laughs> and and, and, and gear wise even, you know, I took I had a backpack that was someone else's because I hadn't bought one with me, you know, and I didn't know anything even about a backpack, you know, what straps you had to pull or nothing. It was just a school bag was the, all I'd had, you know, previous to that, I guess, you know. And so going up into, it was, a, it was like a three hour climb up into this valley. And, and yeah, I was, I'd been trained, like I used to ride BMX, so I was pretty fit from when I was younger and I'd been doing a bit of training, but from, from where I lived in England on the flat, you know, oh. just flat cropland and then going to NZ. Yeah. <laughs> massive eye opener. And um, we hiked up into this valley and it was three hours and I thought that was like the longest three hours of my life, you know, it was massive. And <laughs> what it, a grind. You know, it started, you know, you were climbing and then you had to cross this gorge, take your pack off and then you'd be in, you'd be in in ferns and with bush lawyer all grabbing onto you and then get out of that and you're walking across the logs and then you would get up into like foot deep moss you know like and, and then into the river but it was adventure and it was just awesome and and, and I, I took like 20 arrows up there I had my flexion jig I had a bow press for my compound all this stuff like Ready to go. Know, I'd hate to think what that pack weighed you know but this was all <laughs> stuff that I thought I needed you know clothing I had like cotton US military pants on you know and, and a shirt and that it's, but it's things you had to learn oh yourself God, it right? was it's... it was amazing you know I was and took these photos from when we got on this point and you could see all the valley and that and then it was it was unreal you know and we and we saw a few reds and got onto some animals and never never shot anything on there but that was like the best hunt of my life you know it was ridiculous that that's so cool drinking the water out the river you know stuff england although i was exposed to the outdoor it was all you were always within you know a few k's of miles of the road you know yeah. you could and it was all it was all day hunts if you like we, you, we would go out in the morning we would hunt and then we'd come back afternoon you know or if it I mean, carried on it'd be that but i really wanted the adventure of going out no man's land wilderness and then just going for long periods of time and camping in the bush that we we kind of 
on the hunting side of things, we never did any of that because we didn't need to. Because you just yeah. go home, you know. Yeah. So to spend time out in the in the in the actual bush was just amazing, you know. And uh, so did that hunt never, and, and then kept on. Oh, we I think we shot a few goats and we did some pig dogging over there and got a pig and carried that out, you know, like now Kiwi style. Yeah, yeah. Like after a day's trout fishing with no top on or sunburn, and then <laughs> get this pig. And, <laughs> carried that out and far out that was hurting you know like but it was it was awesome covered in blood you know i couldn't just wicked you know it was what i wanted so and i i i came back from new zealand then i guess a changed man i you'd say you know it's uh and that was in that was in 2006 i was i was 24 23 when i did that and then my dad's mate back home he another guy that we hunted with he he came over to visit Australia and he came back and I'd had a few, like my mum's cousins from Perth. And oh, yeah. so we'd already always had, you know, she'd bring us Aboriginal postcards of Aboriginal art and boomerang. So it's kind of that seed, I guess, looking back now has always been there. You knew something, what was here. some, you know, I, I, like I said, I had a boomerang on my wall and all these things. So that a little bit of Australia was always there. It had no relevance at the time, but now it has. <laughs> yeah, that's like right. And, um, you know, my mum's horse, she's got horses and that, and she'd always have, you know, talk about Australian saddles and everything. So, you know, we had, it It was a bit of a, an influence there, you know, but, but but all I knew about Australia then, you know, I thought Australia was a desert, like the whole thing. It right does. Right. Crocodile Dundee and Neighbours, is that was that was it. <laughs> that was my Australia, you know. What a representation. But, but, but Crocodile Dundee was awesome, you know. I thought, oh, it was like that. I mean, wicked you know like, that's me yeah but the the actual reality is a lot different you know and so my dad's mate come over to australia and he came back in in 2007 so new zealand was 2006 2007 he came back and he was telling us about it and he's like you know we're gonna we're gonna move there and i i, I kind of made my mind up then i said to my dad i'm, I'm gonna go to australia yeah. just and and you know i started I, I had a friend that was over in perth and he um he was on a two-year working visa and I was going to... I kind of started the ball rolling then, you know, and it was it was pretty... It was pretty easy because by then, you know, we had the internet and, and it was all... I knew a bit more stuff and, and I, I've travelled now in my mind, you know, yep. I can do this. Yep. And uh, I, I did a bit more work back in England, different places, you know, went to Portugal and stuff. So it kind of... The flying and that, but it was always with other people. It was never on my own. And that, that was kind of before, actually, I went to New Zealand. I'd always flown and done stuff, but I'd relied on other people, you know. I'll just I'll just copy what you do. Yeah, yeah, so to do it on your own <clears throat> was a, another step for me. And um, I... So I kind of, yeah, decided then, and I don't know, you know, how I've been brought up in that. And I, I did karate when I was younger, and that kind of taught me that to never give up, just keep going, do stuff that installed a lot of discipline and everything in me. So I kind of think when I said that to my dad and that, you know, he knew you were that, doing that was going to actually happen, you know. Yeah. And and they said, they were really supportive. They said, you know, you go, there's no, you know, hunting in England, had, it had gone downhill, you know, like hunting foxes. They banned hunting with dogs. So everyone thought they were banning the red coats on the backs of horses hunting foxes, which everyone had. It wasn't a problem with the hunting the foxes I don't think it was more of a class thing they just wanted okay. to yeah oh why should they do that you know they're yeah. not like us you know but 
when they did that ban, they actually banned hunting with dogs. So it was it wasn't just fox hunting; it was what we did with the lurchers. Yeah, you know, it's a whole lifestyle. Gone, everything, right? There was people like hound masters who looked after hounds, hanging themselves because they thought their life was over. You know, Fuck. and there was people killing themselves because that was it. Old guys that had done it all their lives, yeah, and they thought they that's all gone. Yeah. And even before the ban happened, this was happening. And it was like, oh my God, you know, like, again, it's a case of people in the city making rules for the country they know nothing about. In the country, you know, that they know nothing about. And and how much it's going to affect those people. Yeah, it's massive. And and so everything, but there there was massive loopholes, you know, like, it shows how much they know. So a good example is they, you could hunt rabbits with a dog still, right? With a, whether it's a lurcher or a terrier or anything, you could hunt rabbits, right? But you couldn't class hare, you couldn't hunt a hare. So, hare's classed as a game animal in England, and a rabbit's classed as a pest species, right? So, because that's a game animal, you couldn't run, you couldn't have a lurcher, like a running dog, and run a hare and catch, you know? That was a big sport in there. I remember going out doing that when I was younger, and you know, we'd have they'd have massive meats, you know, they'd have, again, beaters taking big tracts of land and then they would have two dogs and they'd release them. And, um, and they'd catch the hare, you know, and whichever dog turned it the most and that, no, no, no betting or anything like yeah. other people did there, but it was just, it was just purely to see the dogs working, you know, that's like, what it's about. that's it. Yeah. Well, you know, cause you've got the dogs, you know, that's an enjoyment that people get from it. And that's what my daddy liked to see the dogs working, doing what they were bred to do and what they loved doing, you yeah. know? You don't teach a dog to do that. No, Think it it's forced into doing it. It does it because it's it's DNA to do that, you know. Yep. And so because a hare was a game animal, you weren't allowed to hunt them. You could shoot them with a shotgun, which made no sense because the amount of things that got wounded like that, like I say yeah. again, with a dog, it either gets away or it dies. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. But you could odd. still shoot them with a shotgun, which would cause way more. I've seen it, you know, like yeah. people shooting it. Anyone can go and do that, you know, like. That's odd. So, and you couldn't hunt foxes, which are a game classed as a pest species. So how... There's an how odd line they, in the they, sand there. You know, they've, they've put... who Someone in the city has gone, right, a rabbit is hasn't got the same life values, you know, it can't be put on the same as a hare. Whereas, they're, you know, they're, they're still an animal exactly the same, but they've raised one up above the other. Yeah. Saying... You can do it with this one, but not this one. There was no premise around that. It was purely just... No, it was just... just this it, is what it, it is. It wasn't... Like I say, that's when I say it's more of a class thing and, and, and different things like that. They were just... They're making rules about stuff they know nothing about, you know? Yeah. So, you know, how can you, you hunt a rabbit and, and not a hare, but then a fox is classed as a pest as well? That's but not then, a game animal, but you can't hunt that either. Yeah. You know, so they make stupid rules. But, but the loopholes, you could have... There was people started going on the fox hunts, like with the people on the horses. I think they were allowed to use two hounds. So people were worried, you know, oh, that fox is getting ripped to shreds by all them hounds while it's still alive. That first hound that gets to that fox kills it. Kills it, yeah. Then all the others have been chasing it. They all have a go on it as well because that's their reward, you know. But that happened. So a loophole was you could have an eagle because it wasn't a dog doing it and they would they would have two hounds put a fox up and then they would release this eagle and the eagle would get the fox and then crush it for half an hour but that was perfectly fine that was a loophole within the law (laughs) you know it's stupid absolutely stupid but you know people did that and so Uh they kind of you know my dad knew that hunting was 
it was going in a different direction there yeah. you know it was more people where we lived and that and you couldn't do as much and we stopped you know the the guy that owned all the land he passed away and his sons took it over and they got greedy you know we want to have more shoots we'll just get more birds instead of putting more cover and bringing more wild birds they just wanted to run it more like a business you know we yeah. can do we can do 15 shoots a year you know as opposed to five or whatever and you know we can get more money more people yeah. will be paying because the the paying guns they paid yearly i don't know what it was 750 pounds or something to go on this many shoots a year okay and they just wanted oh we can get more money to do yeah. that you know instead of keeping it at a reasonable pace where the birds weren't too pressured and too flogged and and it would all you know say keep within a cycle they just wanted to start pumping it out like a business so my dad's not like that and he, he pulled away from it and we lost a lot of land then but we still had other land we could go on but you know they knew that doing what I wanted to do and how it was going there they supported me you know and they said which was really good for me you know like it made the decision a lot easier you know they said you you can go over if if it doesn't work out just come back hmm. so so yeah. I did that but I think they knew that it was going to work out you're going to make how it they raised me it, <laughs> there, there was only one way it was going you know and I can remember I said to the guys at work, you know, uh, I was going, you know, I'd been in that job since I was 17 and then it was, you know, it was coming up to 25 and I was going to leave, you know, like, and, and so I had a friend in, in Australia in Perth and I was going to go stay with him, but then he broke his arm and he had to come back and I'd already got on the Australian bow hunting forum and started talking uh. to people on there, you know, so then I... I decided, right, I'm going to go to New South Wales. What what forum was that? The, like Antonio's, oh, the, yeah, the Australian right. Bow Hunting Forum. Yep. And, you know, it was different back then. It's, it's, it's changed a bit now. It's, but it was, um, it was, it was good, you know, I got to learn a bit and I had ordered subscriptions to magazines over here, you know, Bow Hunting Down Under, not Archery Action and I was getting them delivered to England. So I was kind of already starting getting to get into pumped it. about it, you know. And so I decided to come to New South Wales then and, and, uh, yeah, basically, I, I I talked to guys at work and said I was going, and one guy was like, "Oh, you're like an old guy that had been there ages." He's like, "Oh, you'll be back here in a few weeks," and I was like, "No, no." Yeah, I don't think so. And I talked to another guy, and he said, while I was talking to him about him, he goes, "Yeah, I had a friend that went to Australia when he was, you know, twenties or whatever." And he goes, "You know, he's got a sheep farm now, and wife out there," and I could see in his eyes that he regretted not going with him. You know, he, he had the chance to go with him, and I was there and then. I was like, "That's not going to be me. I'm not going to stay at home and regret doing this." And and I kind of said to myself, "I can either stay at home with my parents, save up money, travel to New Zealand or Europe or whatever, if I got that worked out." But I'd never have any money. That cost me like four thousand pounds to do that trip to New Zealand you know it was yep. with flights and guiding fees and everything I was like I, I can't do it I've got to either do that or I can go somewhere where I can hunt yeah and I can just do it when I want and not pay anything sort of thing you know and it was either Australia or America in the early planning stages and I was like well America you know I was looking into getting green cards and going working at summer camps and trying to get in you know that way and what you could do but Things like driving on the other side of the road and, you know, little things like that. They're cons, right? They yeah. build up after Whereas a while. Whereas Australia was like, right, you've got no no um, set game, you know, seasons. Yep. You know, you, you have on a few, you know, the fallow and the roost. Oh, not the roost, but the fallow and the red a bit. But, 
you know, no no tags, no bag limits. It's just basically an open Free savannah, you know, yeah. public land. Well, same as America, but you know, it's kind of it was a lot more loosely based, and that affected my decision. You know, I was like, well, that seems like what I'm going to do, and I'll be close to New Zealand. I'll be three hours away instead of twenty one hours. You know. Yeah. So, yeah, I came round and and um, I left in January two thousand eight. I arrived here. Yeah, that, that's um you know, you know all them guys out there that are listening and um you know uh, thinking that um you know we spoke about traveling for hunting and that you moved to another country to hunt <laughs> really that's it. and, and I know, never, that's dedication man. And i lived at home prior to that so i mean for my parents it wasn't just me you know i moved out of house and i left the country all in one hit you know yeah. i moved out home and left the country and so it was it was massive you know and um and I met my wife over here and, and you know, started that going. And, and as a start, I I worked for a company. They sponsored me. I was on a year's working visa and then, then they sponsored me because they knew my boss back home had sort of, he knew someone over here and they wanted me to come work for them. But it was in Chatswood, you know, and I didn't want to, I know nothing about the roads and I didn't want to drive up there and I got a local job and then I was finding it hard because they stopped taking people with work experience prior to that. If you, the September before, prior to that, if you had like massive work experience hours in your field, you could get a skilled work visa, but oh, they yeah. stopped doing that. <laughs> so I had to get sponsored and, sure. and but then I started ringing this guy up and saying, yeah, I will actually come work for you, you know. And he sorted and I got on a four year sponsorship and then, then I got married and, you know, I'm a resident now. But I got to travel all over Australia with that job, you know, so got to see everywhere, you know. It's got your wish. I've, like I've, I've travelled more than... A lot of Australians, you know, I've been <laughs> everywhere here, you know, and, and seen it all uh, with hunting and with work, you know, but I'd be away three weeks at a time and, you know, that got hard, you know, so. Well, that's where I'm at right now. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not a good look. Yeah. No. The, the lure of hotels are nice at the start, but when you're in them, and I was doing night outages as well, you know, so we would just it'd be a zombie when I came back, you know, and we had no kids and that then, but still it's hard on a relationship. Oh, it's hard on everything, man. Yeah. Even just, just running a household yeah you know. and and you'd get I'd, I'd get a spreadsheet you know these are your jobs your name would be on it and all the jobs and right you're here here so you try and fill in bits of your life where i want to go hunting for that week but i've been away for three weeks and i come home and i want to go again hunting that's and you you know it, it's it. massive me my wife's really understanding you know i did that a lot you know but you kind of had to give as well you know i'd be home for a while and then but the thing is they would always change it so you'd book something there i want to go there and then oh that job's been cancelled so it's moved to here so your plans are go out the window yeah and then like you say you're, you're, you're getting that now and it's, yeah. it can't be sustained forever that kind of lifestyle it was good to get money i was able to buy my house but <laughs> I'm, I'm glad i made something out of it you know at the start i was going and eating at the pub and drinking and that a bit and and by the end, I was eating noodles out of the kettle, you know, just to save, <laughs> to save money for, you know, the allowances we got for food and that. And, but I saved up a lot of money and, and bought a house, so it, 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 works, it was yeah. worth it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. But that was three years doing that, and it couldn't have gone on any longer. Yeah, it takes its toll, just I think that... It- you take away a little bit everything something affects you every trip yeah. you know yeah. and then you come home and then you've got home life to readjust to and then yeah. it's time to and then go you're again going bang and it's done. you basically you know sometimes i just live i'll never even unpack my clothes you know that's you know, yeah. my suitcase, in the suitcase in the corner, you know like and that's it and you just go again you know and it's it yeah that's hard that was that was hard doing that but it was for a purpose you know part of the bigger picture you know so it, it worked out well and um 
so coming over in that respect so yeah left got here and, and started hunting and that and it was a big it was a big shift in my life you know and I was able then to get more into bow hunting everything was more available you know like and, and actually go out and hunt game you know like it was bow hunting's massive now like yeah. everyone's a bow hunter you know I've been talking to a few guys and and even guys that have been in bow hunting for a long time in Australia when it was unheard of like hunting with a bow and you're mad um, to now that just it's just a pathway like people are just I'm a bow hunter that's, yeah, it's that's just it. everybody's that's all they hunter. do yeah, yeah. yeah. it's uh, I mean I guess you know coming uh, we, we take here my mate said to me once in England he was like Australia's like the um, it's like all the good parts from England and America <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. and, and it's kind of like we are following suit of America but I think they they um, do it a lot more obviously because of the seasons that extends their time in the bush whereas here that's you know, exactly right that's the only reason that they probably bow hunt or muzzle load yeah that's it they hunt. try and cram as much in but here you know you can just go and do what you want for as long as you want you know people I, I hear people here moaning you know like and you got and I used to say on the forums and that you know you, I've had to leave my family yeah to go and do this and you guys can do it whenever you want whatever yeah. you know it's, it's a big thing you know and that's what I'm saying with that dedication side of it like you can whinge i whinge all the time about the conditions here and but you know when you put that against what you've come from where you've got none of that that's it you know make some decisions in your life you know and 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 stick by them and see how you go you know and that's been that's nearly 10 years this year i think this january that i've been in you know and i've crammed a lot into my life you know i've got two kids now and a house wife business you know a couple of ducks in the front yard i saw yeah yeah walking around that's it life's, life's good yeah no it's um i'm impressed man it's set up really well so that's it um you started then so where did the marksman quivers come into the so i've always i've always like i said before i've always made stuff and been quite handy because of my parents are like that i've obviously picked that up from them you know my mum's an artist my dad was a carpenter anyway you know he can do anything you know like anything he wants to do metal work would just do anything and with that's obviously rubbed off you know a lot of me and my brother and yeah we never had we never had heaps of money when we were young like i can remember you know it wasn't i never never went without at all but we you know we'd get motorbikes and guns portals instead of going on holiday and that but it was always if we can't in england you couldn't get things so we just made them instead you know like okay. if you can't get it you make it and that's it and, and so that has helped me i guess get into doing this but i've always been into leather and that you know and I guess, you know, because it's a, a traditional thing and it, it kind of goes hand in hand with, especially with the traditional bows and that, it's, it's part of it. It's just, I mean, looking at some of the bits and pieces you've made here, it's not it's not hack work. Like, this is quality. There's always room for improvement, stuff. but yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's getting there, you know. I've, I've, it just it seem seems like pretty... it's done, though. Like, it's very professional. It's a very I'm, professionally I, done product, yeah, you know. I, I, that, I, I guess that's just me. I'm kind of like that. When my, I, I work as an electrician, you know, and before that, I did broadcast wiring, and it's always been like that. Like, when I trained doing my wiring, you know, we'd have to loom everything with cable ties, and if there was any crossovers, cut it out, do yeah. it again, you yeah. know. And I was kind of like that already, but that just amplified it massively, you know, that... <laughs> it's not good enough if it's not right. So yeah. it's kind of, that's that's carried through my life to everything I do. And and with work, that can get touchy subjects, you know, because it's like, you, you, 
whether I'm doing it and it's got to be a quick job, whatever, it's done a certain way and that's how it's done. So they don't like that because it takes too long and money, but you know, it's, I don't have to, you know, I don't have them restrictions here, you know, it's, yeah, you I can, can do it. It's, it's right. going to be, it's going to be right. And then right when, when you talk like that, it's to a point with your knowledge base and materials available. It True. can only, obviously I, I want to just keep improving these. So, you know, the more I gain knowledge of and the more parts are accessible to me, I'm always looking for new ways to improve them. And that will just be an, an evolution, you know, it will just keep going, you know, new products, new ways, new processes. It's it's good, you know, new tool, tooling and that to do things. Because so. you stamp your own leather, right? Yeah, so I, I work a lot now. So I, I got a leather set in England. I swapped it for a guy. It was a guy we called Merlin at work. He like, obviously looked like a wizard. And he was, you know... <laughs> And he he had a he had a leather set of tools and a real old one and were they punches and like yeah just um, stitching rollers to mark like pricking out the holes and and a few different knives and and um, creases and that to put an edge line on that then you you'd go along your stitching wheel and prick out the like mark the holes and you'd go and with an awl and and put your stitching holes through and yeah and he bought that in and I was like wow and he he. He was into wood carving and I had a wood carving set. So we did a trade and he's oh, nice. like, I'll do this. But he said, you've got to make me a little leather money bag. And and then he carved a, a necklace thing for me. Like, cause I was into the, all the Celtic stuff, you know, I've got like Celtic tattoos and that. And he carved this proper like Celtic knot out of wood. And I was like, that's awesome. You know, so cool. we, we traded that and that kind of got me started doing stuff. But I, I, it was hard to get leather, you know, I ended up buying some at one of the shooting shows that they used for making the hoods for the falcons you know they were just a little bit leather and i started like i made the back quivers and that over there and and that that's that's a pretty hack job you know like techniques i just didn't know about then you know like it's a lot of work going into that though right yeah hand stitching and that but it's, it's more the techniques and that there's a lot easier ways and different ways to do stuff so i did i started doing leather work over there but it wasn't like when i got here i actually found a receipt the other day and it was like the month after I got here, I went to Bertall Leather in Sydney, a massive leather shop, and far out, I bought so many dollars worth of tools <laughs> there, you know, like... Uh, like a kid in a candy oh, store. It was ridiculous. Because <laughs> no access to any of that, and then it was just all there. Saturation. Leather, and tools, you know, everything, and it was knowledge, basically, and I was just, like, went crazy, and I've been going back there ever since and just <laughs> buying more and more stuff, but, you know, it's... Uh, it's all good to have the right tools, you know. Well, and especially developing when you are trying to stay ahead of the curve and develop new products or new techniques or get better at it, yeah. you need those tools to, to do that, right? That's it. That's it. So, um, yeah, so I made my first my first quiver. There's one up here. I made, made that faux quiver. And that was just for me. You know, I had no ever intentions of doing anything else. But I, again, I, that's cool. I just wanted to make one. And, and so I made it. And and uh, a little five hour quiver and um, so then I started looking at because uh, I always wanted to that was my plan it was move to Australia start a leather business up to do with archery <laughs> and you know and that's what I've done yeah and I did it you know and I so I made that quiver so I was like started thinking how can I do this you know and then you've got to start looking at processes that you can make it viable to not just be ha- i mean at the start they were just handmade you know someone had 
see them on the forums and email me, private message me, and I'd, I'd make one, one you know, these colours and whatever, you know. And I used to do arm guards, like stamp them with all pictures, like there's one with a red deer on it there, you know. That was it. another arm guard that I made. That was I made that in England. You could see the difference. Yeah. The difference between them two, you know. So that was the first one I ever made. <laughs> that was kind of got a bit of a Lord of the Rings vibe. It that does, doesn't it? <laughs> And then, and then I started doing this kind of one, you know, when I got here. And they're just for arm guards, like to protect you from the string, yep. you know, on your on your arm there. That's a lot of work, though. A bit of road deer yeah. antler on there. Well, that might be month jacket, you know. Wow. Kind of a process, so, you know, it's good to see where your roots come from, how you've improved. And then start doing stuff like that, you know, like proper embossing that. But they, they went all right, but... It, you kind of the the custom route of doing stuff people send you photo do it it becomes too too hard you know like yep. it, and so when i was away all the time i was for work there doing the, the tv stations and that i would i'd work on a website you know at night in the hotels or during the day before the night outages you know i'd just sit in there and do that and, and got a rubbish website going and, but that that started i started selling a few things because i'd got you know some processes done and got a load of stuff machined and anodized and i thought you know it's starting to look like it's at the point now where it could it's good enough to sell you know and i've never i've never seen any other boat because i've never used anyone else's so i didn't i had a look at a couple that i've seen at clubs and that but kind of just had my own route i was going down you know what i wanted to do and what i thought worked from from using them in the in the bush you know and actually hunting with them so I uh, started doing that and um, processes have changed and, and they were more one, one-off one things before the website you know people would order them and I'd do them for them and, and then I got the website going but that was a lot you know it was a lot of work still back and forth to and throw you know so then then we kind of I, I got a process going but we are doing this where we lived before I was doing it having to get everything out on the dining table and that and it's just yeah. nightmare you know like yep. so now to have this place set up it's it's good you know like everything can stay out and just work on it but and then we, we moved down here no internet no phones when we got to this place so kind of I had my son just before we moved in here then it was just no time and I didn't want to take people's money and have orders because they're all like people pay from then I build them it's like a five week build period yeah but I didn't want to take anyone's money if I couldn't do the orders didn't have time because it's massive just your life Everything just goes going upside on. down moving into a house and having a kid you know yeah. so I, I sort of took the website off and just didn't do it for a few years And but people would still message me and contact me you know can you do one for me and that so I kept it kind of going but not advertising or doing anything but still working in the background working because I was going to do I'd do this level work anyway I'm, you know it's it's good to just keep going and keep developing it and then started another website and, and got back in and, and started doing more now and it's yeah definitely time thing now that. you know yeah like, yeah you know getting a few orders and word of mouth getting around and uh, people seem to to like them so i'll keep making them you know it's definitely a quality mm. product i mean the stitching on some of this stuff is crazy yeah, you know it's, a, it's, a, it's early stuff you know it's, a, it's always trying to it's hard when you do it if you're making one thing for yourself you can do it the best ever way of doing it and absolutely 100% you know you don't need to find where you can get stock of parts that are going to be ongoing but when you start manufacturing something that they've all got to be the same and you've got to have ongoing stuff you know 
because uh, it's a small business, you know, I might, you know, buy a hundred of something. And then when you go to buy them again, six months later, they're not there. It's changed product. Yep. You know, that's a constant battle trying to find the same things. And, and, you know, I can't just go on eBay and go, right, I'll buy some of them because they might not be there. So I'm used finding local businesses. I mean, to, to build one of them quivers, I've worked out the other day, it, I involve 12 local businesses to build one of them, you know. Like, it's 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 good, you know. I'm, I'm trying to help well, people in Australia so they don't have to buy stuff from America, you know, and pay shipping and that, you know, and have a product here available that you couldn't get previously. And, you know, by doing that, I'm helping local businesses. Comes back well, to that you know? cycle, man. Yeah. Like, well, that's it, it, you know, yeah. you sort of get set Life up your little network. Circle, you know? yeah. That's it. So I'm getting some good guys now that I know that I can get stuff continuously and, and work stuff out and, and, and the different techniques and processes that's, you know, I'm able to find new places, but it's constantly evolving, you know, making them better. Um, but yeah, it's different manufacturing stuff to making one-offs because you, you there's so many more things that go into it you know like oh, yeah. stocking parts and that you know and the outlay too right oh, like, massively you know like you can't you've got you've got to assume that you might get 50 orders you know like so you can't buy one of something <laughs> i've got to have stock of you know 100 and then then when it's only small minimum quantity for getting stuff done like not so much like water cutting and that's a bit different they'll do but they'll charge you whatever. But if you get stuff made, you know, like like these little. So that that's just one part of the quiver. For right. hundred of them, it costs five hundred dollars. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's just a little plastic washer, basically. You know. Yeah, I've got to have that, set, and that's one part. Yeah. So them quivers, you know, there might be ten parts of that quiver, and I've got to have all all that sitting there. But that's just running a small business until you can get to bigger demand and buy more at a cheaper cost it's, it's still, hard you know yeah, but right. kind of it, it's 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 not it's not like my livelihood you know like I work another job as well and do this and and work for Tusk as well you know doing that stuff so it's kind of I've got a few things busy going on but it's I, I don't drink I don't smoke I'd be there's plenty of other ways I'd be spending that money oh, I might as well this is this is I'm passionate about it it's kind of a hobby I always like tinkering with stuff so I'd probably be doing something like it anyway but just not on this scale you know like I guess and and it's a service to the community to to the bow hunting community that you want to support right like you, you want to support that Australian bow hunting oh, yeah, community yeah a lot so of people I, do you know they do and, and, I, and I do yeah and, and you know that goes both ways you know I want to like I say you get stuff from America from Three Rivers and the, the big traditional shops, you know, and, and with a dollar, the way it goes, and then the shipping, it all adds up. So to give people another option here is is good, you know. Like and you've got a guy that's making it. Like, that's kind yeah, of... Yeah, the, these, that. are, these are all made, or there's no stock of these. When someone orders something, it's handmade for them. No, I can see you know, that. It's, like it's, yeah. yeah. There's, because, you know, I make stock and then someone orders a different colour, you can't <laughs> do it. So it, it's made that for them, you know. You're, there's some love gone into it, I guess you'd say. You know, it's not just not just off the shelf, chucked in a packet and there you go. It's Yeah, there's a story behind it. You know, it. you've had a lead up to getting this product off the ground. You've sourced the, the bits and pieces from all different places. You've worked on that one piece of equipment for however long of your life you put yourself into it and then you know that person's got it hopefully forever i mean yeah i mean i started making these quivers you know that was like 2012 so i've been doing it a little while now you know and i've had some intermissions in between but mm. it's it's i've gained a bit of knowledge on processes you know stuff i used to do at the start and how i do it now is just 
just through doing it is, is, is changed massively you know for the better in whether it's more time for me to spend with my kids and that because i'm narrowed down a process or, yep. or just something that's better for the customer or you know it's uh or for the product yeah for, you know, for in like, general you know just constantly learning there's always something to learn like you, the birds of leather up there in sydney they they do classes you know and like i they do all kinds of leather classes and i i, I went to a few of them just you know I, I was already doing this stuff but there's always room to learn you know yeah. like there's always even just to find out about different levers and why why they use the different levers and that you know like the like you said about the stamping and that there the embossing it's using full grain leather because it's thicker and it will because i wet mold it for the quivers so and then that dries and i bake it and it will hold that shape Somewhat, okay. you know, like as opposed to chrome leather, which is like the the leather that most people think of, like a leather like a jacket or something. Yeah. yeah. Whereas that, if you you wet mold it and heat it, and you can get it to stay in that shape, you know. And but because of the structure of the leather, it can be embossed. You know, when when you wet this, when you wet the leather, and then you emboss into it, because there's a lot of air in the leather. You know, the 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 fibers underneath are separate that embossing will stay in there right whereas you can't emboss without yeah, heat okay. and that you can't emboss the chromed leather the different tan leather so yep. that's why i use the it is more expensive you know doing it like that but it's a full grain but it's you can just be a lot more creative with it you know well, you can see the difference too like yeah. it produces a nice product right with that like and then, then you, you stain all this up after you've done your embossing stain it and then seal it all that's cool yeah it's a it's, it's different techniques and different levels so you know going to these classes you know there's always more room for more knowledge you know like I was, I was there you know talking to the guy you know and talking about different tanning alum tanning or different kinds of the tanning of the lever to preserve it you know like and make it so it, whether it stays pliable I'm like you know I need to keep it hard and getting all this information of different levels because it is just it's never ending I've only scratched the surface but you know and it'll continue and I'll things will just keep going and getting better and better i guess oh it's impressive man so a uh, lot of photos hanging up a lot of time spent in new zealand after that first trip i guess yeah, that, yeah. that planted a seed big time a sickness i guess you you would know it yourself you know it's a sickness it's it's a 24 7 360 days a year thing it's, it's just such that i mean you've even got maps um yeah. you know of all a couple of different watersheds and um you know you got pins on them and yeah. it, you truly live that you live for that um adventure. alpine wilderness yeah, adventure and yeah. talk to me about i mean i saw some photos of you living under a tarp um heading up to the tops like i guess um i'm i recently bought a quilt so yeah um, right. i've I've done away with my sleeping bag so yeah. far. Great um, decision. Aaron's, Aaron, I don't know. I'm scared to get it out of my pack because Aaron's going to shout oh, me down. Yeah, I'm like this with Tony. Oh, <laughs> man. So, but, yeah. but then he, he carries a um, a really, really lightweight sleeping bag. He doesn't feel cold yeah. or the heat like I do. See, I, I do, uh, like, come on that subject, like, coming from England, like, It'd be ridiculously cold there all the time. I'd go to work and it'd be minus two and I would come back at four o'clock and it would be like four degrees. It, you, you didn't get the swing in, you'd know yourself because you've been there. You don't get the swing of temperature there. It's, yeah. it's, it's at one temperature and it will vary slightly. Here, you might get 20 degrees in a day. And you've been up in the top set when the sun dips down, just oh. kisses the horizon and you feel that cool air come down and it drops 10, 15 degrees. Yeah, it's, and you kind of like, you know, all your layers are going on. One of the last trips we did, it was, it was minus, my mate 
in the tent with me, he woke up at three in the morning and on his watch, it said minus 10. Yeah. Right. And we were on the tops in the snow on a south side, south side facing um, range. So we weren't getting no sun. Yeah. Like, and then in the morning, everything was frozen. Everything. Boots. Like your laces were just like bits of wire. Yeah. You know, everything was frozen because it's wet. And we got out and we, we, I think we woke up, I got out at 10 to like eight because it was all we were, it was a, I can't remember. I think we were going to pack up and go anyway all the next day. But we'd had, it'd been flooded. Like all my mate's tent was flooded. We had two inches of water in ours. Yeah. Because obviously you can't pick a place to camp in NZ. You just camp in the best spot that's mildly flat. Where? You know, and it's like, usually only one spot. Oh, this was this was on route down to a tarn just next to us. So obviously there was some flow through the night there. And, and we all had water in our tent. My mate's sleeping bag was soaked. Mate Clinton and, and uh, that kind of that being that cold as well, it kind of, there was decisions to be made there, you yeah. know? And, and so we got out of the tent and we were like, right, we're going to have to pack up and, and head off, you know, cause he'd already shot a tar and, and there was three of us hunting that range. It kind of blown out, you know? And, uh, and it was probably 12 o'clock before we got packed up because yep. it was just so cold. Yeah. You could do like five minutes and then your hands would have to be, yeah, back in, in your jacket. In your jacket, anyway, you could get them under your arms and that to get warm. You know, I can remember a little bit of sun shone on this side when it started, you know, 11 o'clock midday, a little bit, and my mate was like running over and <laughs> Stuck trying to get the up. sun, just that little <laughs> circle of sun, you know, like it is ridiculous. Whereas if we'd been on the other side, if you could get there, it would have been luxury, you know. It's funny, like, I've never, uh, I was up in the headwaters of the Copeland a couple of years ago, and I've never been so cold and prayed for the sun so much and then being so belted by the sun in the same day that we got sunburnt to blisters in the same day and hated the sun so much only like four hours later it's just there's such a shift in temperature and weather but so that that seed like i say that that was planted back then and and it's been a sickness ever since you know like it's just you long you long to be over there and even how i mean we we walk in we don't we've never taken a chopper and just through set limitations on ourselves you know like me i hunt with two other guys paul ray and clinton miller and there i was lucky to find these guys you know paul i've been friends with since we got to australia through the forum you know i was working up near his near where he lived and i went around there one night and we spent like it was till three in the morning talking in the garage you know then i'd have to drive another three hours back to where i was working <laughs> and go on a night shift or whatever you know like but you know that kind of friendship stayed and um, and then he he met Clinton Miller I think through the forum and that first New Zealand hunt that we did in 2011 that's or we did together it was the first time I met Clinton you know so we uh, but we've become really good friends and we like the uh, it is a sickness in the how however hard them hunts are you get back on that plane and you're already wanting to go back. You're romanticized about it. Aaron spoke you, about you, it in you his just, podcast. Yeah, that's it. You just, it's the same. You you forget all the hardships you've just been through. How cold you were. How much food you didn't eat, you know, <laughs> like how yeah, wet and cold everything is. Just the humping of a pack for days on end. Putting you know, frozen like, boots on in the morning. Oh, all that eating shit. backcountry meals and deodorant <laughs> rubbish, you know, like it's, it's um, but all that gets forgotten instantly and you're just like, right, next year come come back yeah, I'll go yeah. back to that valley or I yeah. need to have a look over that other ridge just, or... that's it you can't leave any 
anything unturned, you know, like that's it. You, there's a bit that you didn't go in and it's like, well, I've got to go back there because I need to know what's check. over there. Yeah, yeah double check. <laughs> and uh, so, so what, what, like, I, I mean, with you, is it kind of light and fast or you guys kind of pack to an area, set up a bait, like yeah. pump a keeper gear to a base camp and then spike out from there? Yeah, we, we haven't done much spiking out. We kind of, we always try to get high, you know, we'll, we'll hunt for days, it seems, and get up there, you know, like, um, and our packs aren't particularly light, I guess. You know, you think now, you buy your gear at one point when you've got money and then everything changes and gear continues, but you've got it, you know it works, so you keep it. That's, I've had the same, like, sleeping pad for That's 10 it. years. I've got, like, a Neo Air, and I've had, it, I've had that since we started, you know, doing it in 2011, and that's done, you know, five or six trips, and it's still good where, you know, these guys bought X-Ped ones, and I've seen three X-Ped mats explode on hill, you know, like, yep. not, not nothing against X-Ped, but just, I've seen them die, and I've seen people have to sleep on bowling ball shape, or let nearly as much air as they can out, and put everything we own under their pad to keep them warm, <laughs> just to try and get a little bit of flatness, you know, yep. and it's, things like that make a hard hunt even harder, you know. Oh, it takes its toll. Yeah, it takes its toll. It. So, I was lucky to find them guys that are of the same mind as me, you know, like I've spoke to this about Tony who owns Tusk, you know, he, is, we've become good friends through doing this as well, you know, like, cause we're doing it the same way he's always done it. And, and uh, he's like, you know, you're very lucky. The guys he went with at the start, they just didn't, weren't on the same page he wanted to go further and they didn't you know a lot of guys are not prepared for it you know and i've, I've said it before and I, I say it probably every podcast like i'm not naturally a tough or hard-headed person right. you know like that's something that you've just got to say bad luck i'm just yeah. gonna go i'm it hurts yeah that's shit it. You, just you just, i think it's nz same as a lot of stuff is is a very it's a mental battle you know you've got to as long as you've got like I can walk, it might take you longer, but I can, you'll just keep walking. And if you're with other people that will just keep walking as well, you guys will just keep walking. Like that first trip we did, you know, we, we walked to Ice Lake in in the water over there and just kept going, you know, that was was like three days. It was just eight hours a day, just walking. We'd stop at five minutes every hour and we'd just keep walking, you know, we knew nothing. We had so much shit that we didn't need and, you know, it was ridiculous, but you just keep walking and we just did it and we just pumped it out. And, And like, I can remember these you know we, we pulled up in the in the car park at 2 30 in the morning like at the trailhead there and as soon as so we slept three of us in a car with a pack backpacks all our food was still in the all our food we got from the supermarket was still all in the plastic bags like grocery bags so yeah. that was all in the car three of us mat loaded packs you know like uncomfortable trying to sleep now with just three of us so seven o'clock it started getting light Open the door, sand flies instantly, just yep. smashed to death because <laughs> we're right in the river there. And, and then we started packing, it started raining. So we were under that little sheltery thing we got there, pulling all the all the unnecessary packaging off the food. And you'd have like two bin bags full of Shit. unnecessary packaging, just shows you what the world's like now, you know, like and loading up your little bags of your Ziploc bags of day food. This is today's food, this yeah. isn't it? All the same, you know, like and so that took hours. And I think, you know, 11 o'clock we got going. And, and I can remember that valley standing there and I'm sure, well, I know them guys thought exactly the same thing, you know, the, the clouds and the mist was hanging halfway down the valley and it was just, you couldn't see the top, like, higher than so far and it was just like, it's a long way ominous. Up yeah. You couldn't see it, it was just fog and, and a river and it was just like, it's a big dirty valley that doing? too. <laughs> yeah, and 
and we started walking and we didn't stop for three days you know trips like that though you, you've done it and then next time you know well that's not as bad as that trip we did in no that's it that's what you know Tony would always say you think that's bad there's always going to be other ones that are way worse you know and, and he's one guy that's probably experienced the large majority and, of them and, and done it solo as well so you've got no one to bounce off or do it's just you know do it and, and well you're stuck in that position like I man I've heard him talk about some situations that he's been in as I know you have and mm. And it makes me think, well, what would I do? Yeah, that's well, it. I mean, you're Freezing all the way on, in there. on getting over small bits on with massive descents, you know, like and gorges and crossing them and freezing up. Yeah, and when you're on your own, it's a totally. I'm, I've never done any solo pack. Now, there's something I'd like to do, but you know, there's a, there's a few. It's, it's cheaper, obviously, when you've got three guys splitting money and when you've got a house on it. it there's a lot of factors to it, but yeah. just I, I, it's something I'd like to do to you know as a, another test, you know. But getting for for what other people have done, you know, Aaron's the same. You've got him to tell you stories and and things like that. It, it's good to have well, that influence for me to sort of say. I've got to stop whinging or stop like yeah. <laughs> these guys have been through so much worse so this is a walk in the park and, for them but, but this is why they've been able to do what they do now you know like Tony starting up Tusk and all the knowledge that has made it's not he's not a businessman trying to make money he's he's making clothes that he wants because it's the only <laughs> thing that works because he couldn't find anything else he's a hardcore hunter that's, that's it. done it and you know and that's really like from early infancy of shit that just didn't work out well yeah, but so you make your own same yeah. as mine you know exactly my stuff it doesn't you're not happy with what's available so you start making your own and he's just taking it to another level and and that's it you know him and his brother as it were they were a massive influence on us you know like the, all the stories that doug used to put up on the forum and that they all they all got lost when the forum crashed yeah all that influence that we had is no longer available for anyone else so it's kind of Doug doing the magazine and that now it's good that people can see that stuff but yeah they they them two were a massive influence on us and it's good you know through the clothing my wife's a, a seamstress and she she was able to make some of the prototypes for Tony and some of his clothes so that's how sort of we met and and you know and ended up now you know it's sort of kind of work for him in product development and that because of what we're doing is the same as what he did so it's a you know it's kind of good to get out there and he gets feedback so it's good to have another set of boots on the ground testing yeah. gear out you know I've taken some stuff overseas and you come back and he wants the details of, yeah, of how it all works you know and where it well detailed yeah that's yeah. it and, and you know he's the same as what I am you know it's everything will just continue to get improved and it will never never be it will never be perfect but if you just keep continuing to get it right and then improve things then you can't go wrong you know everyone benefits you know again yeah you're supporting a community that in, in reality is probably still in its infancy compared to the states yeah. I mean there's so much room for de- development in the hunting community in Australia regardless of bow or but, gun or... And, and even though I mean for example hunting New Zealand you know Tony, Tony's done that for 20 years you know like and solo a lot of that his uh, stuff that you can clothing that you can buy in America which is to some point up until now especially the technical outlet for mountain hunting that stuff was all that was available that's not necessarily suited to the conditions in new zealand no or the alpine environments in yeah, australia either. at all you know yeah. like it's you know the amount of rainfall you get in new zealand it's you know i suppose you could it would be close to bc and that well, i've never been over there but you know i've heard stories of people coming over 
and hunting from over there and they say New Zealand's a lot different too there you know a lot worse in a lot of cases you know Aaron always referenced you know the, the benchmark yeah, is like, the west coast of New Zealand yeah that's you know, it. he, it's there's few places that compare to it rainfall the terrain the the plant life there just everything is stacked against you as yeah. just one person trying to get somewhere there's no <laughs> there's no big wide valley and then it's just a river and Constantine, yeah, sheer wall. <laughs> a lot of the time it is, and and you've got to climb up that sheer wall to get to the tops, you know. And it's, it's a, it's a totally another ball game out there. But you know, that's where them, you know, a lot of the the tusk diving is come from there, you know. And then well, here, look at um, them, the amount of time they put in for Yordland. I mean, it yeah. rains six plus meters a year, um, and it's gnarly country in there. Um, if you can develop clothing coming out of fuel, and I would be fairly happy to wear that anywhere in the world and, yeah. and i have i've taken tusk um to, for a lot of international hunts and it's it's worked or p- performed flawlessly i've never had an issue with it anywhere mm. so i mean if uh, that's that benchmark again west coast slash fjord and new zealand mm. it's going to survive that then i'm pretty yeah, comfortable just, taking it anywhere gonna, else uh, we, you know that's pretty much done one east coast hunt but all our hunts have been in the west coast and it's harder but it's i think it's it is more suited to bows and this was like the information I got from Tony and that at the start when we started going over that it was it is more especially even you know track gear you're taking it you're cutting down then distances that a little bit more but different to the open east coast you know mm. it's, um, but yeah so I was lucky to find these guys that are of the same mentality and you know we've never we haven't been in a chopper yet because it's the adventure side of it you know that people I, I think people miss out you walk in yes it's harder and yes it's going to chew more days out of your holiday but you've achieved something when you've done that you know it's self it's, it's setting limits for yourself and challenging yourself you know like oh, every time people I've had people say to me why do you do it with a trap bow and walk in you've already got enough limitation with the trap bow but it's self-imposed limits you know I well, that's a test that's for yourself. Right? It's, it's, it's all a test, you yeah. know, moving to Australia. It's a test of yourself. You know, doing everything is, why not test yourself and see what you can? And, and a lot of the times you will come through it, you know, like it's, it's uh, a lot of you'll learn, you know. Well, yeah, you know, like you, you just better yourself each time you do it. It becomes, yeah, I can do that. So what else can I do? You that's know? right, like, yeah. That's it's, exactly right. Tick it off. It's never ending, you know. And and it's not just it reflects in all parts of your life then, you know. If you, you thought that was hard, something's hard and you complete it and you survive it, then what else what other options have you got in life? You've got it's endless. Well your your level of ability goes up, right? Because you know how far you can push yourself or how hard you can push yourself. So all right, that was hard, but you know, that's that's, that's in the experience bucket now. <laughs> so the these guys we're all of the same mentality, which I think is rare to get but we've got three of us together and we've done a few trips over there now and are they are trad hunters yeah yeah both of them wow. both trad hunters so we're, we're kind of yeah all the same and trad gang pretty much yeah, yeah. and uh we go it's, it's a good experience that you know is just adventure and a lot of time you know most of the trip is like your bow is the least bit of equipment you need really because it's <laughs> i'd rather have a good pair of boots you know and a good <laughs> nice comfortable pack as comfortable as it can be you know because that's a very small part of the hunt, but that's why you're there. If you, you know, I, I wouldn't go walk over there tramping just to look at the stuff. Oh it's only because God. I've got that in my hand yeah. that I go there. Yeah, I know. But it's... I, it's the, you know, you hardly use it over there. <sighs> but 
it's just a reason. It's a reason to be there. Yeah, exactly. And it's a reason to go into some of these places where you think with the sand flies and all of these other... Can the, you imagine what doing What the that? fuck am I doing in here? The, the, <laughs> the people that go tramping it, I mean, they must love being out there and seeing it all, but it's for different reasons. <laughs> like, if you, I don't know. I don't get it. I don't even, I don't get it. because If you didn't have a purpose to be there, why would you be there? Yeah. <laughs> because it's, think... it's horrible a lot of the time, you know. It's not, it's not a so pleasant true. place to be, you know. It's... So true. But it's, I guess it's, you know, NZ is, uh, it's wilderness, you know, it's so, and it's so achievable that you can just get a free permit and go where you like, kill what you want if you get that chance and just, you know, it's, it's easy really. <laughs> I mean, yeah, even with the firearm going over there, it's easy. Yeah. You, know, oh, you, us, you get to the, you get to the customs there. And they love it, you know. They're, the only thing they want to see of ours is, you know, your knives, your tent maybe, your boots are clean and your feathers on your arrows. And as yeah. soon as they see all that, they're telling you what they've been hunting. Oh. And just, it's ridiculous. It's a, it's a breath of fresh air. Every yeah. time you look forward to going through customs, you know. It's... The cop that, because usually when you come in with a firearm, the, the police officer will be waiting for you with your firearm at the um, carousels. Yeah, yeah. And you walk up to him, yeah, oh, that's mine. Oh, yeah. Great, mate. And he's, I've never been over and had a shitty experience. They're always, oh, what are you chasing? Oh, good yeah. luck. Oh, yeah. what's this gun? You know, like they're it's always. Amazing. It's just a massively, it's a different vibe. It's like over there, if you don't do stuff outside, like activities, you're kind of, you know, you're not like everyone else. Yeah. There, you know, yeah. it's, uh, and you, you write on your card when you're going in, you know, like on your, the, the, the visitor, customs card, yeah. visitor card, whatever, and you write, you know, where you stay and you write just, uh, this valley <laughs> and and uh they're like oh you're like oh yeah we're just gonna walk in there and that's what we'll be yeah uh, it's never been a problem no, you know no, i've never had a problem with uh, that or you write the hut name if you go yeah, to a hut it, i love writing it. the hut yeah, name yeah it's pretty and cool it's, uh, so yeah it's it's i love new zealand it's kind of i mean obviously you know that might have been another option i could have moved there but you've if, got if, more options here if, though um yeah i think but also when we go to new zealand we go for two weeks and a hunt so it's always the same vibe. If you live there, you would get out hunt, but there would there would be distractions. I've got to service the car. I've got to go to work. Oh. You'd end up driving to work, looking at the mountains every day, and you wouldn't yeah. touch much feet on there, you know. Yeah. But so it's kind of good that when you do go there, you look forward to it. It's an overseas hunt, and you go and you do it. And that's Ball all for the wall, do. though. Like that's yeah, it. It's that's just it. dedicated it's just two weeks. So you know that's really a. It's really good, you know. I uh, I like that part of it. But so what pack you running over there at the moment? So I've always run Kafari packs. I've just upgraded. I've had that one for five or six years. It's still good, but I kind of evolved into a few different features that I thought might be handy. So I bit the bullet and got another one. And yeah, it's uh, it's yet to be field tested too much, but uh, the other one performed. So we'll see what this one could do. That's they a Kafari pretty... reckoning for that one. Oh, is that? Yeah. pretty solid frame hey? they are they they are a bit overkill tony tells me this all the time but um uh, what i mean doug's packing uh stone glacier yeah, at the moment isn't he yeah very lightweight stuff i mean that these are compared to them there's a lot more material on these and a lot more features i guess but um really they've gone a bit more spartan these boys now they're getting older and they know they don't want to be carrying that extra weight you know but i you know i kind of because i do a lot of other stuff with that here and that you know i kind of well, that's your one in a pack that would, yeah, it's just one pack that kind of does everything, and and I've had success with the other one. You know, I've been able to carry a whole fellow out on the frame, and I that. Saw so that. It's, yeah. yeah, you know, there's different. Uh, I don't know how you would go with an ultralight pack. I'm I'm 
I'm interested to try that, you know, like obviously we're developing some some stuff in the future, you know, Tony's got clear ideas of what he wants in a pack yeah. now, so it's uh, it'll be interesting to try and see if you can get a one pack that does all or maybe, you know, see if you can develop something like that or over a couple of packs. So that would be something in the future, you know, I'll give that a go and see what the limitations are of having a light pack because of it adds weight you know I'm still fairly young I can cope for but I, I can see the mentality of them that lighter is better Skin, yeah skinning it down a bit. but you know you, what do you do out there you you do away with things and you've got less comfort but what what comes first you know it's it's a it's always a good argument you know do you have something that functions that's heavier or do you have something that you haven't got the functionality as good but you don't you're not carrying the weight well, what's the trade-off though right like if the if the extra comfort means that you're going to have a more successful trip be happier yeah well success being yeah being happy like yeah, you've enjoyed yeah. yourself and yeah. you haven't almost died well then it's probably worth the extra weight right yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> um, it if it's you know a kilo i mean you could shave weight off in other areas yeah um, i think you just get lazy over time you know when i started you were researching stuff and then you were you, everything in like say you buy the most expensive stuff because usually that's the lightest stuff at that point and yep. you try it and it works and then as time goes on you know that works so you kind of get lazy you don't oh i've got to buy tires for my car i'm not going to go and buy another sleeping pad you know like or another pack and you just go well it works it works but but like you you know you can do it like back probably back at the start you're like oh fuck that start that adds up to weight i don't know if i can pack that weight or i don't know if that's going to work or so you just buy the best of the best or what you've read is the best once you start getting that experience under your belt you get lazy because i think you've done it you know and that money can be spent on bills and other places (laughs) you know like it's uh yeah but, um, <laughs> yeah that's it on, on products but um stock but um yeah i, I yeah I, I guess you've got to see it as the same as everywhere everything else and keep keep on the ball and keep on track and keep improving and seeing what new technologies have come out and well and yeah. for you guys like i mean it's it's hard when especially in australia tusk is developing those now so like mm. it's it's kind of hard to follow a um following another company's footprints when you're making your own yeah that's you know it. like and you've got to change things and, and push boundaries i'll get and, and like i said what will work over there won't be specific over here i mean you, I, i've never hunted america so i don't know but the kind of impression i get you know you walk up a trail and it's it's not like a walking track in you especially in westland they call it a walking track but it's far from a walking track massively yeah it's it's yeah. a it's a climb basically you know you're whatever it can be anything you know there's no walking along just it's arrows stapled to a tree basically yeah. through what's through probably the least likely place that you'd ever go you know, <laughs> in some places yeah. and and that's it you know but it seems a lot different over there like having stuff I, I see pictures of you know on instagram whatever of americans and they've got so much stuff strapped to the outside of their pack that just wouldn't cut it in new zealand Don't, you, you, if you have to enter the bush in new zealand just having a pack is a bad enough thing if you've got all stuff it'd just be littered all over i think you always you always know um an experience level or or the type of hunt someone's experiencing if the pack is wider than their body and yeah. higher than their head then it's, it's yeah. not that extreme like no, it can't that, be that, that is extreme. It. and if there's stuff strapped on the outside <laughs> yeah we kind of go an arrow tube on the outside and that's still cumbersome you know like the last so 
like you mentioned earlier about TARP, we, me and Clinton, Paul wasn't available to come and we, we, we went on a, it was a, a creek closer to get to the same access point up the tops, but we decided to take the creek before the one that we normally go up. Right. And we did a bit of research on it. People said, yeah, oh, it, is, it is doable. And we went up there. And this is why we took the tarp, because we knew that there's not going to be a lot of... Well, there wouldn't be anybody to put a tent on the way up there, you know. Okay. And, um, but you still had a tent. We had a tent for okay. the tops. Because we always try to get as high above the animals as we can. And, you, you know, you get not far off the top of the ridge line, find a spot that you can possibly pitch a tent and you, you do it. And, and that hunt, we didn't kill anything on that hunt, but that was probably the best hunt I've ever done. That was... We, we went... So we went up this new valley and we... We got so far up, I think on the second day, we, we got to the mouth of the river, camped there on, in the tarp, because we, we didn't want to pull the tent out on that, yeah. just get it all wet and dirty and shit, you know, before you get up there. And So, not that that's going to matter, because it's going to happen anyway, it's inevitable. So, <laughs> yeah, but you try and keep uh, it, not like, you know, even you know, my your rain gear, I'll just, you know, I'll, <laughs> I'll walk along in a base top because I'm hot and, and save my rain gear. Save it, so, yeah. Yeah. so yeah. it's not getting wet. And, uh, <laughs> so we we started up that creek and we we it had been washed out like massively they, they i think they had we inquired after and they had like two feet of rain in, in like such a small period and, and what was the side of a creek like a valley type thing that was all trees and that before previous years was just looked like moonscape it was right. just just got absolutely annihilated yeah so we were like bloody hell we got going up there and we we ended up on the true right of this creek up in it's rubbish and we it's just a, a rock that we just couldn't get around or get over or anything you know so we we headed down into the creek and we ended up camping there and it was just on a big flat rock and we ended up putting the tarp up with a trekking poles and and that was we called it fern camp because we cut a load of ferns put on this rock and that nice. was like an awesome camp you know it was it was wicked and you know we got a few photos of that and, that. and then we we got going the next day and we could only go so far and then it bluffed out just waterfalls we couldn't get so right we got to go in the bush and we spent we spent three no we spent a day and a half in that bush and three and a half hours of the first day once you got so far I mean, it was so steep we had to put our crampons on we started using crampons a year before for the tops we had like little three quarter inch spikes and we had to put them on because of the leaflet and the mud was so slippy and it was so steep Right. I've got pictures of Clinton and he's like, um, he's standing as vertical as the trees on the thing and he's like, his, his face is probably that far away from the, the slope, you know. Like, Shit. We're going up and then that, and we stopped up there for lunch, you know. And then from then on, we had to crawl because the subalpine, the higher you get, the lower it gets and yep. the more twisted it gets. Yep. And we were basically dragging our packs and we crawled for three hours, hands and knees, dragging our packs, getting through that shit. Sounds like so we, yeah, oh, was awesome. <laughs> and we don't have our bows out. Like we, this kind of goes through like traditional bows now start off with a two piece long bow. Now I use a three piece recurve because it all just gets packed in the bag. We don't bother oh, having them out right. on the way because it's just pointless. Yes, we bump animals and they stand there at 20 meters, but it is the hardship of carrying that bow in New Zealand. It's a risk in. too, I guess, right? Like you could damage it. Oh, that's it. I've had strings break and yeah. stuff, you know, rubbing on your pack if you've got it strapped to it and that is just whatever we'll hunt when we hunt at yep. the tops you know like it just get there yeah and um we we crawled for three hours there and and then we just by chance clinton popped up and there was this little like hillock that was just kind of grass 
and we could stand on it and get out of the bush and we could see the tops, you know, oh. in the distance. And it was like, yes, we're, we're nearly there. <laughs> I don't know how we managed to find it, but there was enough room just to put two of us to lay down in this little bit inside the sort of hillock with all brush around it. And we put the tarp up above us and, and that was another cool, cool spot. You know, we'd base layers were shredded, sand flies had just hammered us and it yeah. was, but it was cool. You know, we got there and then, <laughs> then the next day we started up and, and we started on a course back to the creek because we'd obviously gone around the bluffs and we were hoping that we were going to come out above the bluffs and, and we did, but even that, we both fell in them as ferns with the potholes and the rocks. Oh, we, yeah. we both fell and I I got back problems anyway, like a bulge disc and I nipped a nerve there, so I wasn't feeling I wasn't feeling good like that photo up there. I was I was hurting there. We we'd come back out on the creek and it was sunny and but I was hurting big time and then and Clinton had a fall as well and we continued up the creek there and we, we bumped a couple of chamois up there and we saw some tar on the top and and we got to a point and um, and the mist was coming, a lot of the fog was coming in and we set up a tent on the, the most likely place we could set it up but we couldn't put the inner of the tent up because it was like on a, a mound so we just oh. put the outer of the tent up, crawled in our baby bags and, and got in there, you know. I see had beefs as well. Yeah, yep. just do you find if you want to spike out and also it keeps all your shit together in the tent you haven't got the mats sliding out because you know what the ground's like there it's never level what are uh, what bivy what i've got a mountain laurel designs it's, it's quite light still nylon bottom tap at the top and it's got an event foot panel and right just mesh on the top and it's just it's good you could slide your bag i bought it because it fits that neo air pad that i use you know like slide that and have your seating bag and i have it all rolled up in one in yeah one like one thing, thing you know yeah. so i just when I make camp, it's not pulling little things out of separate bags. It's just Roll undo it, out. blow it up, and it's done. Yep. You know, and uh, you know condensation on the tent and that keeps it off your bag and just everything and just what we've been doing. But it's something that has to be looked at because you know it is a bit heavier, I guess, and you could go lighter. But well, I mean, the reason I ask is again, you, it's functionality. Well, or if you were to go to a flawless tent design, yeah. So that's it. When you're in the tarp, it's fine. You just put it on the floor, and, and it's, it's good. And, you know, and if you want bivy out for it away from your tent, you can do it. And it, it serves multiple purposes. Yes, it is heavier, but to me, it has more functionality. Well, potentially, like if you go to what we'll what we'll say is like a TP design tent with no inner and no yeah, floor, yeah. which I, I think would be almost probably if you went with just that in New Zealand, it might yeah. be a death sentence. Yeah, yeah. But in other areas, especially because they're reliant on pitch, a lot of them shelters like how you get your pegs in and you know putting 10 pegs in there is a nightmare because well, I mean, just usually it's like a rock you can't get it in you know like you'll see, you, <laughs> or tie, you tie it to a rock or whatever yeah. and you do that so we put the outer of the tent up there and um, just crawled in there and and then by the morning my back had got worse and I was I got out of the tent and I was just I don't know because like I say it was literally a mound under the tent you know and I slept and it just made it worse and compounded it and and I was my back was spasming and at that point I was like I'm gonna have to get chopped off the hill here it was that bad and I was like we weren't even up up to the top shit you know and and luckily Clint had some uh, Mobec tablet for his knees and I took one of them 15 milligrams of Mobec and I was I was better after that you know if he didn't have that yeah, I don't know I don't know what would happen because every I can my back spasms and then at the because of the dish bulge, it pushes on the nerve and, and all the muscles contract to protect your spine. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, over, and I can't, it's just... Can't it, stand up right. You, you yeah. know, so you can't do anything and, and you just got that stabbing pain every time you move. So 
that alleviated the problem. I sort of recuperated a bit in the morning. He went for a hunt and saw a lot of tar up there, but out in the open, you couldn't get near him. And then he come back to camp and we we started going. Then it started raining and and we crossed the creek and went up the other side. And, you know, it's, just, it's teamwork out there, you know. He was like, I couldn't bend over, so he's helping me put my crampons on and that, you know. Yeah. Like, you feel you feel vulnerable that someone's going to help you to do something, but it's a team effort out there, you know. It's, That's, but he could equally have... And I'd be doing the same for him, you know. Right. I'd, if he broke his leg I'd, and I had to, I'd carry him out, yeah. you know. Like, it's the same yep. thing, you know. Like, it's... That's why you go on you those hunts with someone else. It's... And, and make sure they're of the same character, you know, <laughs> yeah. that nothing's too hard and we're just going to do it. And uh, so, you know, helping me put my crampons on, leaning on. And then we kept going up the thing and there was a, it was in like a, a, another offshoot creek and it was like a creek there, but there was a all shale rock, but there was a little grassy patch on there, just big enough for the tent. We're like blinded. Put the tent up, still at an angle, whatever, you know, like things are out there. And... Uh, as we as we were putting that up, it started snowing, and then yeah, we got in there, and this was probably about you know, I don't know half two, something like that, and and you know that's it. We were in the tent till the next day. And, oh really? And and woke up, and it was just snow everywhere. Every ten minutes through the night, you had to because we've had this before. Tents collapse when you don't bother doing it. Punch a snarf. Punch a snarf. Every you know that's no sleep then because every ten minutes and every time you punch that the condensation falls on you it gets everything soaking wet. So and then you've got snow building up at the top and bottom of you. So your head's touching it, your feet are touching it. It's just they're getting cold, getting wet. But and then you've got no air ventilation because it. the bottom of the tent sealed. And and, and that's it. You know that's New Zealand. So we've had <laughs> claps in seven in the morning. Both of us couldn't be bothered to do it, and just, the whole tent just fell down. I think you've got to unbury it, but. So then the next day we started hunting. It was so windy and blowing a gale, but we 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 got off and we had a good hunt. And and at one point we hunted and I I cut around the front. Clinton went over the back of the range and I cut around the front because we sort of hunt separately when we're up there and we have a radio to keep in contact. And we both got PLBs and we got the mountain yep. radio back at camp. So we um we, we that works out well, you know and. Uh, he got onto some tar and I got onto some chamois around the front and then we couldn't make it happen. I was coming back and I, I saw, I got to this, it's like a bowl at the top there type thing and with an elevated ridge behind sort of thing and I, I could see this tar just sunning himself out and I was, must have been 100 metres from it, you know, and it just wasn't bothered and at the start I was like, you know, I saw it and I thought, fuck, get down and having a look through my binoculars, glass and it and I, I must have stayed there for an hour or so because I sort of started heading back as it was getting dark, because I was like, oh, I'll hunt back and, you know, get back to the tent. And and then I was like, all right, watched it for a couple of hours and didn't do much. It was just had one horn, it was laying there. And I was like, oh, fuck it, you know, I'm not going to do anything with it. It's too late now. So got up and, and it still stayed there. And I was like, oh, so started looking at it. And then obviously, and then I was like, well, I wonder how much time I've got. Could I get around all here and get across the tops to it? And it still wasn't moving. I was like, oh, whatever. I was like, this is weird. Maybe because it had one horn, no one was to shoot it, and it wasn't worried about him. I don't know, like, knew I was far enough away. Yeah, yeah. And then, then out of the blue, it gets up and it starts, it just mills about, and then it just starts feeding down. a little gutter next to it, sort of fed down to there. And then, like, two seconds later, Clinton's head comes up from behind it. He had, like, been on a three hour stalk, scaled up this chute behind it, but he, because of the ground was that way. He, he he has to shoot his bow like angled at one direction 
but the lay of the land the other he way. couldn't if he was left handed he could have shot it that uh, way because yeah. he cancer the bow that way but he couldn't see it and he was like 12 metres from it for like an hour and a half or something yeah. you know? and he came up and I was frantically trying to tell him it was below him because it was just he was there and oh, it was just just no. down in the shower like 10 metres away and I was like it's down trying to, and he's like oh, and I'm going down doing some stupid dance trying to tell him it's below <laughs> him you know and and then it got up and it, it ran and he had a shot and, and missed it. And uh, then I started cutting around because it just wouldn't leave us. It just it just kept going round. And I was trying to circle around to get on it as well. And I got I got within sort of 40 metres of it, but I just couldn't... It went over the top before I could get any closer. And it just wasn't bothered. It would just stand and watch, watch me after that, you know. And then I got to a point out on this thing, you know, as when your adrenaline starts going, you just go, I dump my pack. And then, like, it flipped over the bridge. And I was like, right no crampons on on this like sheer face <laughs> I got back? to and I was like right I've got to actually try and back out across this stuff now it's all ice you know like, <laughs> Fuck, get some stupid situations <laughs> but you know that started and then we we went around and got into the base and we normally hunting and had some chances on chamois and that and and it had a buck there and it Clinton was going over and I could see him and I was like there's a there's a buck not far away and I was trying to sort of talk him down telling him which direction to go down to it and it started obviously they were in their rut at that time and it, it started bombing up to him and I was like look it's going to come out like right in front of you 12 o'clock now and he's like obviously things you know the same as me trying to tell him there and he, he tried to talk me on one as well you know like he was like there's one just below you and I cut around and went into a gutter and it was in thick snow so I was making heaps of noise but if I'd have just like gone over the top, it would have been right there, you know. And it was like bedded below me where I was glassing from, but I couldn't see it because I didn't ever see it. Coming. It looks different though from yeah. where you're looking somewhere the perspective. else. Yeah. And this this chamois come right up to him, but appeared there instead of there, you know, where I thought it was going to come from. I was like, it's right next to the big rock, and he's like, I couldn't see a big rock where <laughs> I was, you know, like, and it was like the size of a car right next to him. I could see it, you know. Shit. But and then. And that's where we, you know, we used the tarp now there, but once we got to the tops, we were in the tent because you've, you've got to be bomb-proof up there, as bomb-proof as you can. Like, we've had that first trip we did, we had a... We were running out of water at the tops and we were having to go down. We were going to have to go down and get it, and we had a storm come in, and it was like 10 hours just pounding. I was like... the I, th I thought all our gear in the vestibules of the tent and everything was going to just be washed away. I thought it really was that, that bad, water. lightning and thunder, and it was just like, you feel so insignificant up there when yeah. that thunder's pounding. I was just like, but we're either going to die or everything's going to go. We'll just sort it out in the morning. Got out there, and I'd put the tarp out to fill up with water, hopefully. Yeah. But it hadn't rained for a couple of days, and then, yeah, had so much water. We could have had a bath if we wanted to. <laughs> like it. But, yeah, we survived that one. That sort of hammered home to us the the need to have a good tent and we're using you know clint's got it we were using an, an x-ped um venus t oh, yeah. on recommendation from tony that but now we've gone to sort of hillebergs they're a little bit heavier again but they've been they're proper bomb proof because Clint, clint's got a solo a solo or whatever the single man he uses that because when there's three of you two in one one in another single man tent you know sometimes you're 50 meters apart because yeah. it's just the ground doesn't allow for you know the terrain but we we um ended up going to them you know and he had the Sula so the the other one he's got now I think it's the Alak or the Ak yeah I think it's the Alak and that's a two man version of that and that's performed so we had some high wind last time in 2016 when we went and that performed really well you know cool so yeah always changing gear but you know we've you kind of um, I'm, I'm waiting you know there's a lot of a lot of clothing I don't want to 
waiting for the rain gear and that that is being developed you know that shouldn't be too long away and that'll be really good to getting that stuff because you know again that's come from tony's experiences it's going to be suited to the kind of hunting i do out there you know? yeah that's right and you know that it's going to be tested at least as well in conditions that you're going and to, I get to test to. it now so it's all good it's <laughs> you know, pretty give cool. my feedback and it's good to be involved you know absolutely but um, what hunts you got planned for anything for this year uh nothing more i might get down on sandbar a bit end of this year Oh yeah, you know, bit of a late season one. Yeah, yeah, and and then I want to go to New Zealand next year again. So nice, get man. get ready for that, you know. I guess and uh, get yeah. start loading the pack up and start. Yeah, marching. doing a bit of training. I'd, it's um, usually uh, I don't know. Working another job and doing this stuff, it's kind of oh, everyone's got times that are restraint, you know, for whatever reasons. But um, I found with kids coming home and you start to train they'd want to see you when you come back from work and it just gets you know it, it, it's it's hard you know like oh, it's hard to fit it in when you got a family but you know if you want to do it you'll do it so sort of three months before i usually i usually in in past hunts i started prepping in february and i'd do three days a week sort of an hour do like 45 minutes of weights and that and then different stretches and whatnot and then do like 20 minutes on the treadmill or whatever and then supplement that with hikes on Saturday mornings down, I can just drop into a valley of the back here with a pack oh, yeah. on, you know, yeah, and do that. But it's it's been good. But I've kind of been trying some different stuff. Not not I haven't been training, but I will start that again. It's a uh, I don't know. It it's it's hard to justify. It's like this is the the last thing that comes in. It's the first thing that goes out when things get busy. You know, like yep. <laughs> unless you've got a deadline, like a hunt to go on, it kind of gets pushed back for me. But you know, it's something I want to improve on. It's like instead of doing that bursts of training just for a purpose, like kind of keep it sustained. And yeah. I always say I'm going to do it, but it again, you get busy and it yeah, just life gets, gets in the way, yeah, right? It does. Like, it same does. deal for me and I don't even have kids. So. That's it. But um, I've kind of, I've been doing a few different things on, you know, Tony's been doing a lot of research on stuff. And even, I usually go to NZ around, if, if I've trained hard and had no injuries and I've been able to train for that full three months, I'll go about, 82 to 84 kilos and feel fit you know and good and then i'll come back and put the weight on and then you've got to get rid of it again but i've actually you know been tony's been doing a lot of research and i've done just you know a little bit and and trying it like a bit of intermittent fasting type stuff and and Jeez, it kind he, of he infected me with that yeah, shit as well <laughs> but it, i kind of i just thought i'll give it a go because what he was explaining and i was just like it Seems fits to... into my lifestyle already you know i'll go mm. to work I can eat at nine o'clock, I can eat at 12 o'clock. So if I stop having breakfast and then just do that and like not eat anything at nine, have lunch, come back and have dinner. So it's kind of already patterned out for me. I'm not really changing anything. Same it's just I've got me. more time in the morning because I don't have to sit and make breakfast. Yep. You know? And I used to have like a banana and oats and milkshake, do a smoothie and drink. I've got an hour and a half commute, you know. That's what I do. So I just don't have that now. And at the start, I was like, mm, a bit dubious. Can I survive on that and do it? And and probably in a month and a half to two months, I dropped seven kilos. So I'm at the weight now of what I am when I come back from NZ. Fuck. All the time, you know? And it's like, Makes there's it so easier. little sacrifice. So when I do start training, I haven't got to shed any kilo. I can yeah. just start. Working on your fitness. On yeah, your base straight fitness, away, you yeah. know? So it's, and for what little effort that takes, it's nothing really, you know? It's just not, it's just the world's, 
the world has become accustomed to doing stuff a different way now. You know, these are the times you've got to eat, and you've got to eat. Then you know, you've yeah, got to breakfast have breakfast. You've got to have, <laughs> you've got to have lunch. You've got to have dinner. But well, that's instilled even at school. Like everything it, is, yeah. You, you had to eat. Yeah, you just had to eat because it was breakfast time. That's it. No, you won't be able to function without that. I drive for an hour and a half. I work on metal through the day, measurements and wire and stuff, and I'm And I tell people to work. You know, like. They're like, oh, I've got to, got to lose weight. I'll oh, try this. Just oh, you can't do that. It's bad for you. Is it? Is it? No. Oh, I haven't really seen any bad effects yet. You know. No, I, I've been. Um, the uh, I was in Canada very recently, and I had to drop it there because the time zone difference totally screwed me up. Yep. Like, and I try and stay awake for the whole flight, so I had no sleep period in my fast period, and then I kind of lost track of how long I've been fasting for. So yep. I was like, fuck it, I'm just going to eat my breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and I worry about it when I get back. And I've been back and doing it again. And I don't know, I just feel more in control that I'm saying, well, okay, you might be a bit hungry at the start, but just bad luck. Yeah, just you get know, on with it. You know, yeah. there's like, it's preparation for NZ, you know, you're not going to be eating as much as you eat out there. I mean, we've got our, we've got our food weights for like a 12-day hunt. We've got our food weights down. We've dehydrated food to like four kilos for 12 days. Jesus, yeah, yeah, wow. So yeah, it's it's you know, and that started when we started going. It was like seven kilos for fourteen days. So yep. we've we've major cut out, you know. But I found over there, you you know, you come to the realization. Oh, I've got a load of muesli for breakfast, protein powder in there, and because you're hunting, doing stuff, humping up the hills, you know, you get to three o'clock and go, oh, I haven't eaten my breakfast, you know, like yeah. it's you don't, and then you come back here, you come back home to normal life and you're just eating because you're bored. And it's like, I don't need this much fuel. I'm not doing anything. If I don't need it up there, why do I need it here? And what's funny is if you look at, there's not, like those pre-packaged um, backcountry cuisine meals and that, there's not a lot of calories in them. Mm-hmm. And if you look at, if you were to look at it at a calorie level, how many calories you take in when you're in the mountains and you're expending a yeah. whole heap of what calories. What you're taking here is ridiculous. Oh, man. Like it's just unneeded. We're in the thousands yeah, here and it. then uh, in the hundreds in the mountains, it's kind that's of it. reversed. And so, you know, we, we've got our weights down good on that and that could even be, you know, cut down a bit as well. But it's, I don't know, we, we still, like I say, we're walking in and expending that energy. Even more. So it's, yeah, before you even start hunting. It's just normal now, you know, like to eat that much, you know. And there's literally five crackers, some bits of jerky, a little bit of cheese, a dehydrated meal, maybe a few nuts, and that's it. And that's enough. Oh, that's you know? your, I mean, that's your daily obviously, you could thing. always eat more if you had it. You would, but you, that's not what you, you need. Know, it's it, you can you can get by with that. And again, you know, volume of your pack and weight, food is a massive factor. You know, it will. I used to take packets of tuna from over here because they weren't in the tins or in actually the packets, but that's you know they're getting heavy you know each one is is you know three four five hundred grams they are heavy hey for and really for what they are um, you know over the trip you take seven of them that's another kilo or whatever you know more and it's just just that i'm just sure it's nice to have that and to break it up but have cheese one day have a salami the next i don't know just break up You, you you've got to have some you know there's sacrifices to everything but i don't find you Food's a massive thing out there. You always look food. I, I, I don't know. I kind of base everything around food out there. You know, it, uh, you're always looking forward to, I'm going to have this tonight. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, Mark, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Josh. Good, good chat. Have to do it again sometime. Definitely soon. Thanks, yeah. buddy. <laughs>